welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm in the studio with Dr. Mark Lewis. He's a practicing GI oncologist, and he self-diagnosed himself with the MEN syndrome, multiple endocrine neoplasia. And he's going to talk about his perspective as a consummate physician, the son of a clergyman, and a patient himself. You won't want to miss this discussion. And I have a very brief monologue prior to discussion about the passing of the great Bernie Fisher. So stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. This last week, Bernie Fisher passed away. Many of you know that Bernie Fisher was an instrumental leader in oncology. He was a pioneering American surgeon and advocate for the role of randomized control trials to sort out truth from fiction. Bernie Fisher was a professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, where he spent the majority of his career. And in the 1950s and 1960s, he was instrumental in the NSABP studies, which ultimately randomized women to the radical Halstead mastectomy versus a modified Halstead mastectomy or simple mastectomy, finding that there was no additional benefit to the radical Halstead mastectomy. Subsequent studies were able to show that lumpectomy plus radiation therapy had similar rates of local failure and overall survival as mastectomy. So in a very short period of time and with a couple of NSABP studies, Bernie Fisher took a profession from surgical exuberance to surgical minimalism. And in doing so, he preserved the survival benefit of a therapy while improving its morbidity. I have long said that Bernie Fisher is an example of a true leader in oncology. His claim to fame was not the serendipitous discovery of a important molecular pathway or a drug. His breakthrough was the use of a very simple method, randomized control trials, a method that I have said is the single greatest advance in the 20th century in medicine, and applying that method to a very simple question to ask what was actually better. And that was his insight. And he was also willing to test dogma. During the years Bernie Fisher challenged the Halstead approach to breast cancer, he did not earn many friends. He describes his experience with other surgeons as, quote, extensive and often unpleasant. He was hated. When you read historical accounts of Bernie Fisher giving lectures in this period of time, you read things that Bernie Fisher um, was the subject of verbal abuse during his own lectures. People would yell at him, say he sought to kill women or let women die of breast cancer, when the reality was he had no such aspiration. He sought to minimize the morbidity of a surgical treatment while preserving its efficacy. This week he passed away at the ripe old age of 101, and there was a lovely obituary written about him in the New York Times. Here are some quotes. 
Through dozens of clinical trials involving thousands of patients, Dr. Fisher brought the scientific process to bear on medical decision-making, which, he said, had too long relied on anecdotes, opinions, and untested theories passed down through generations of physicians. In God we trust, he once told a reporter, all others must have data. He had to be considered the greatest revolutionary scientist in the history of breast cancer research, said Dr. Michael Baum, a professor emeritus at University College London who was trained by Dr. Fisher. He turned the subject around, and as a result, women's breasts are saved and their lives are saved. Colleagues marveled at Dr. Fisher's perseverance as he challenged the prevailing wisdom about how to treat breast cancer. Quote, he was the most hated surgeon in the history of mankind. His colleague got to the Cancer Institute and vilified him. Dr. Vincent DeVita Jr., the former director of the NCI, said in a PBS documentary series, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, based on the book by Dr. Mukherjee. I sometimes wonder how he survived, Dr. DeVita added. What struck me was, he was a tough guy. So that's the obituary of Dr. Fisher, and I think it hits the nail on the head that his insight was to question dogma. His proposed method was careful, randomized controlled trials, testing this phenomenon empirically. His, the reaction he generated from the profession was largely one of hatred, of animosity, and he was willing to throw punches just as he received them. This is a quote from Death of Cancer, Vincent DeVita's book. It's a really interesting passage, though viewer discretion is advised. This is a passage that takes place during a lecture that Dr. Bernie Fisher was giving to a group of surgeons. Quote, Bernie simply waited for the diatribe to end. Then he calmly asked for his last slide. It showed two curves stretched out over time. One, a gently downsloping curve labeled PR. The other, a sharply upsloping concave curve with the label CR. The audience was perplexed, and so was I. Being a medical oncologist, I wondered if CR stood for complete remission and PR meant partial remission, but I couldn't figure out how that applied to surgery. After a minute or so of puzzled silence, Bernie dropped his bomb. Here's the problem with my critics, he said as he pointed to the upsloping curve with his laser pointer. Increasing cerebral rigidity, he sang out, aiming his laser at the CR. A gasp erupted from the audience, followed by a few angry murmurs. And this, he said, moving his laser to the downward sloping curve, is matched by PR, or decreasing penile rigidity. Now the anger in the audience was bubbling over, voices grew louder, doctors were turning to each other in collective agreement that Bernie Fisher had gone too far. But the clincher was his final statement. Fisher said that his critics, in continuing to recommend the radical mastectomy, were mostly motivated by economic reasons. So, Bernie Fisher, um, someone who was the subject of much abuse, but willing to dish it out as well. But in doing so, engaged in a very productive dialogue that has revolutionized the field of one particular cancer. And I guess what has struck me about um, the social media response to his passing has been um, the sheer number of you know, retweets and likes that um, his obituary received. And I wish to suggest, perhaps provocatively, that there is something disingenuous about this. Um, the very same oncologists who are contributing to the problem that Bernie Fisher faced, the same folks in medicine who would have been on the side against Bernie Fisher, are now quick to celebrate him. I think there's a bit of hypocrisy that is revealed when an oncologist passes away. A few years ago, a very important geriatric oncologist passed away, and there was a large number of people 
who came to sing this unconscious praises and to speak about the importance of this unconscious work. But I am pained to say I can't remember them having much of an interest in geriatric oncology during the years in which this oncologist was alive. So I think that much of that praise was insincere, um, that it wasn't really matched by action that was commensurate um, with that sentiment. And similarly, I find it fascinating that the medical profession is quick to praise, exalt Bernie Fisher, when the profession has done everything possible to stifle, stymie, shut up, push aside any budding future Bernie Fisher. The profession and the same, very same people who would not have allowed a new Bernie Fisher to emerge are quick to sing the praises of Bernie Fisher. And I want to use just one example, a person who I believe is sort of the embodiment of the modern day Bernie Fisher, but somebody who is faced extreme backlash, somebody who is forced to be reticent, perhaps in the public, who is no longer able to give their opinion on a variety of issues, perhaps because this person is under pressure to stay quiet. And perhaps the opponents of this person have found the pressure point, which often is not what happens to ourselves, but what happens to our trainees. And if so, pressure can be applied in a number of ways to get someone to quiet up. And this person I'm thinking of, the modern-day incarnation of Bernie Fisher, who is getting the Bernie Fisher treatment of 2019, is Dr. Daryl Francis from Imperial College London, the author of The Orbita Study. You know, similar to Bernie Fisher, Dr. Daryl Francis is the author of a vastly important study in medicine, which is a randomized controlled trial of sham intervention versus stenting for single vessel disease and stable angina, with the primary endpoint of modified Bruce protocol exercise time. And that study found that there was a non-significant and less than clinically meaningful numerical delta between the two arms, i.e. that stenting was not associated with an improvement in exercise tolerance based on this metric, and, and thus it failed the primary endpoint of the study when tested against a sham intervention. And this was different than trials that tested stenting against medical management, trials like ACME, which showed a large 90-second difference in exercise time. And the beauty of this study is that it is the first, it is the only study in the history of all cardiology studies of chronic stable angina that randomized patient to a placebo intervention, that randomized them to the sham. And Dr. Dale Francis is also like Bernie Fisher in the sense that he does not suffer fools gladly. Let me read you some of his quotes from Twitter. I want the fame two people to answer us on Twitter, not put in a mealy mouth supplementary note, but actually explain themselves clearly. I want that now. Until then, I reject the guidelines based on our misunderstanding of fame two. They're completely unwarranted. Dr. Francis, I want the societies to do their job properly. Find out. Until then, suspend the guidelines. Otherwise, what is the point of having societies, referring to medical societies? Do you use this terminology in everyday life? Functional CTO? Can I call you a functional idiot, Ajay? And then say functional means not a few years later? Would you be happy with that? Don't block me. This is just a hypothetical, bro. So Dr. Francis, of course, being a little bit cheeky and playful there. Dr. Francis has been blocked by some of his noted critics and blocked and unblocked and ended into battles. Here's another tweet by Dr. Francis. I'm delighted to report he has learned the only important lesson of a PhD in Orbita HQ. Don't put up with bullshit. Well done, Yusuf. Go to the front of the class. And he screenshots uh, a discussion 
where uh, Dr. Yusuf Ahmad is arguing with Dr. Greg Stone, saying, um, Greg, please clarify your seemingly wild, capricious claim that 85% of patients in Orbita crossed over. Dr. Stone, Orbita PI noted at the SCAI meeting that 85% of sham patients had PCI after six-week observation period was over. Others have stated this on Twitter before me. Yusuf Ahmad, but you and I both know that isn't crossover. Greg Stone, now we're talking semantics. Is it crossover to the non-assigned therapy after the study follow-up duration has ended? I wouldn't mind if you called it something else. Yusuf Ahmad, so every patient who has ever received a non-study therapy after the study has ended has crossed over? Question mark. Greg Stone, of course. A crossover is defined as being treated with a non-assigned therapy. If you'd like to come up with another term, go right ahead. But of course, Dr. Stone is being disingenuous here. Crossover is while on therapy, people cross over, and thus subsequent endpoints are confounded by that crossing over. Whereas in Orbita, the primary endpoint of the study was measured prior to crossing over. Therefore, whatever happened after that primary endpoint was measured is irrelevant for consideration of the primary endpoint. It is a irrelevant and fact that has nothing to do with anything. And highlighting that on social media is just a way to discredit the study, which is what many people sought to do. Dale Francis is a lot like Bernie Fisher. They're both sharp as a tack. They're both in your face. They're both willing to say things very clearly. Daryl Francis is doing the kinds of studies that have the potential to topple multi-billion dollar year industries. He's the modern day Bernie Fisher. And how is he greeted? Is he greeted as uh, a welcome player in the cardiology field as medicine embraced him with both arms. Uh, instead, he's the subject of much derision, much criticism, guidelines that ignore the Orbita study, saying it is underpowered, uh, to which Daryl Francis has provocatively and correctly concluded that if you say Orbita is underpowered and you can't say what you are powering it for, the only thing underpowered is your brain. And he's right, of course, because Orbita had at the outset more than enough power to ask the question of whether or not a clinically meaningful difference exists from stenting versus sham stenting. Joe Francis is also right in that his thinking about the role of the subjective belief system in interventional procedures is correct. Whether you're a cardiologist or an orthopedist or a doctor who takes care of asthma, in any setting where the primary endpoint is subjective, be it dyspnea, be it angina, be it pain, and you are performing an intervention that is mechanical with the goal of correcting that, that ailment, the only appropriate control arm in a randomized study must be a sham intervention. You have to do everything but the critical steps. You need to get the person to believe you're doing the procedure because the power of the placebo response is wedded to all of that procedural aspects, the patient's belief and expectation they're going to get better. And Orbita was the only study in the history of cardiology that was able to isolate that. And it reveals an insight that Daryl Francis has had since the work on renal artery denervation. So I think Daryl Francis and Bernie Fisher are very similar. Um, they're both willing to throw punches. They are both the victim of receiving many punches. They're both doing trials with the potential of toppling large entrenched interests. And both of them in their time receive a largely negative response. Daryl has one advantage. He has the advantage of Twitter. And so he's able to reach trainees directly. And largely through wisdom, wit, and force of personality, he's able to connect with people. And yet he still is stifled in many ways because he's not quite active on the platform as he once was. And he has his own trainees and legacy to think about. And there are a number of ways in which the uh, uh, top people capital T, capital P, as Dr. Francis would put it, um, can exert downward pressure on him to keep his mouth shut. So what do I think is the takeaway here? Whether you're in cardiology asking for randomized controlled trials of Impella, 
There's another gentleman there who's who's called for that marvelously, only to receive you know widespread criticism. Whether you're in oncology, calling for randomized trials of uh, foundation medicine, whether you're in nephrology, asking for important studies to test uh, dogma around IV contrast. Um, whether you're an orthopedic surgeon who's performing sham control studies of vertebroplasty or subacromial decompression. Um, these are all places in medicine where you are conducting studies with better power, better blinding, better control, better methods than all prior existing knowledge. You are putting sacred cows on the pedestal. You're willing to topple billions of dollars and strong psychological allegiance to procedures. And all of these people in 2019 are treated just as poorly perhaps more poorly than they were treated in the age of Bernie Fisher. Um, and what that says to me is that all of the people who are going to retweet and like the obituary of Bernie Fisher, who are going to put him up on the list of the 50 greats of ASCO, who are going to celebrate this man as somebody who did a lot of good for a lot of women, who simultaneously are unwilling to have an honest and open discussion about all of the unproven medical practices that exist today, all of the rampant medical practices that seek to come to market based on flimsy, lousy, crappy data, the same people who are the author of such data, who allow the medical writer to massage such data, who stifle any critical voices in this space, who don't perform the randomized trials. Um, these people are all hypocrites. If you really want to pay tribute to Bernie Fisher, you will free Daryl Francis. You will support people like Daryl Francis because this is the man who's living at your time, who's doing the same thing that a prior great did. And history will remember him the same way they remember Bernie Fisher. And if you're not willing to be consistent in how you think about this problem broadly, then you too are part of the problem. So it's easy to say when someone passes away that you were always interested in geriatric oncology when you and I both know you had very little interest in that during the years in which that person lived. And it's easy to say Bernie Fisher did a great deal of good for women. And it's a lot harder to take that, internalize that, and pay it forward so that hopefully we have a medical profession that doesn't need one Bernie Fisher, but that we're all Bernie Fisher. And on that positive note, we'll turn to our interview. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Mark Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the director of GI oncology at Intermountain Health in Utah. He is a practicing oncologist, medical oncologist with a focus in GI oncology. And he's originally from Scotland who came to this country as a teenager uh, and moved to Texas where he did his medical school at the Baylor University uh, and his residency at Baylor as well. Went on to do hematology oncology fellowship at Mayo Clinic was on the faculty at MD Anderson and is now joined Intermountain for how many years now, Dr. Lewis? Three years for now. Three years. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here in Portland for a plenary session. I think um, listeners have told me they're excited about you coming. I've had somebody stop me in the halls and say they're looking forward to your talk tomorrow. So thank you so much for coming. Oh, that's extremely kind of you. And, you know, among your many other accolades, I have to congratulate you on being the number one rated podcast in the Lewis family. In the Lewis family. Yeah. When <laughs> Great. I'm, uh, when I'm taking my kids to school, I have an eight-year-old son, an 11-year-old daughter. We often listen uh, uh -huh. to plenary session. And we listen at different speeds. So we listen <laughs> at regular speed for clarity, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one and a half speed for efficiency, mm -hmm. and double speed for comedy. For so, comedy. <laughs> uh, I, I apologize if that seems disrespectful no, to your no. uh, carefully crafted audio. I, I recently had the experience of, of playing a Beatles album for my son, like literally an LP. And he went over to the record player and took the speed and changed it from 33 to 45 RPM, uh -huh. you know, making my... Yeah. 
beloved Beatles sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. So I'm not trying to be sacrilegious to your uh, your source material. You'd even do it for the Beatles. <laughs> that's right. And then you played the album backwards, didn't you, to find <laughs> out about right. Paul. Yeah, bad news about Paul, it turns bad out. Bad so news, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's wonderful. But, you know, I pride myself on trying to speak so fast that no one could possibly listen to me intelligibly at two times speed. <laughs> um, but but uh, I know it, it would definitely sound funny. You're, you're letting your kids listen to Plenary Session at a young age. Um, I'm not sure all these are PG-rated episodes. <laughs> I think true. some are... Uh, the some explicit are, rating? Yeah, I think some are in the explicit rating. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, sometimes with the speed, we get to blur past some of your uh, more objectionable language. But, <laughs> but no, in, in all uh, joking aside, one of the reasons I do it is my kids are very acutely aware of what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, my wife is a pediatrician, so mm-hmm. it's a, a dual physician uh, couple. And so I've actually want, wanted them to grow up knowing... Um, you know, my, my work and my calling. Um, and obviously I'm being a little bit um, silly and, and imagining that my eight-year-old is gonna become a, a critical appraiser of the medical literature at his stage. But in all seriousness, they, you know, they'll come to the hospital and come to the clinic sometimes and really get to see what I do. And I think that's been really uh, important. Um, we've impressed upon them that we really feel like this is more than just a job. And, you know, I think the hours, as you've discussed with previous guests, are, are unpredictable. They sometimes take you away for, from your family. And so it's actually important for me for my kids to understand what it is that I'm doing all the time. That's wonderful. Would you be proud if your kids went into medicine, follow your footsteps? I would. I certainly would never force them to do that. Um, you know, I'm the first uh, doctor in my family. All mm-hmm. the previous generations, especially on my paternal side, were actually ministers. And so I'm an only child, and I'm, I'm breaking that chain. Um, again, I'll use the word calling. I think it would have been inauthentic uh, for me to uh, enter the clergy. Um, however, I feel completely passionate and committed to medicine. And you know, if that's something that they chose to do, I think that would be um, fine. As it stands, my eight-year-old's career aspiration is to be a YouTuber. You know, mm. I, read, I read recently that uh, apparently uh, Spaceman is now out uh, as the desired <laughs> occupation and YouTuber is in. So I think that tells you something about where we are in terms of social media. YouTuber. I think the world has changed rapidly. But uh, I've recently looked into how much some of these YouTubers are making. And I, too, would like to be a YouTuber. <laughs> uh, I think it sounds pretty good. And you know what? I've had a grand ambition for Plenary Session that at some point we're going to live stream some of these recordings. I know some people like to watch rather than listen. And so maybe someday we will actually be YouTubers. Capitalize on that video revenue. Yeah. Their video revenue, yeah. the big revenue. And I'm sure there'll be ads for Updevo, just as God <laughs> intended. All your favorite products. All my favorite products. Yeah. All, the, all the products that um, you know I swear by. Um, uh, uh, there'll probably be ads for uncontrolled studies leading to drug approval. Just my, my favorite things and surrogate endpoints. Um, so you, you mentioned your family is a family that, that you come from a long line of religious people, a long line of, of people who worked in the clergy. Um, and, and, they're, and you're originally from Scotland. That's right. I could do this whole interview with a Scottish accent if you like. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that would sound at double speed. But uh, yeah, so uh, when I was uh, young, my father, uh, who was a professor of theology at the University of Edinburgh, mm-hmm. got a job offer in Austin, Texas. It was supposed to be a five-year faculty appointment. And um, on his uh, immigration x-ray, because you have to get a chest x-ray coming to America to exclude tuberculosis, they found that his entire right hemithorax was pacified, and this came as a complete shock. Uh, he was 42 at the time. Mm-hmm. He was just at the, what appeared to be the very beginnings of his career mm-hmm. and in good health. Um, and it really was, I think, the worst example of, of breaking bad news. We didn't receive this word from a physician. We received it from a government official who was essentially just screening images. 
How old were you at the time? I was eight. Um, and and you're, where was the port of entry? So Houston? we actually came in through Houston. That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. um, and they basically told us, you know, this is a, uh, not tuberculosis. That's, that's the good news. So you're not contagious and we're mm-hmm. not afraid about your endangering the public health. But this is going to be a problem you have to deal with. And um, we very quickly had to engage uh, American healthcare uh, within our first fortnight here. That was a real shock because we'd been used to nationalized uh, healthcare. Uh, which, for better or for worse, uh, was not associated with uh, crippling cost. Uh, my father's uh, first hospitalization for pneumonectomy, um, before we left the building, we had to put $30,000 on our credit card. And, oh, my. You know, as a, as a professor of theology, you don't, you don't make uh, huge sums of, of money, so that was, that was very difficult for my family. But, you know, unfortunately, that pneumonectomy was unsuccessful in uh, removing what turned out to be a very aggressive neuroendocrine tumor mm-hmm. uh, that probably arose in his thymus, actually. Um, so he underwent uh, radiation to R2 disease uh, in the mediastinum, had a significant effect on his esophagus and his speaking voice as a lecturer. Uh, and then he developed uh, widespread metastasis, uh, which required aggressive chemotherapy with uh, topicide cisplatin. Um, he nearly died uh, of uh, neutropenic sepsis um, in 1991. And through the most providential timing, and, and he called it a, a spine-tingling miracle, um, his oncologist came into the ICU when he basically had a cytosis and told him there was a new drug out called Filgrastim, or Nupogen, administered it to him, and as if by magic, his white blood cells came back. And I actually vividly remember this happening. It had such a profound um, influence uh, on me, uh, witnessing what, what, again, appeared to be just an absolutely remarkable recovery of my dad's immune system. Um, and... I'll be honest with you, when, when he finally passed away from his disease, it seemed spectacularly unfair to me. I think I actually went through a period of um, not um, atheism, but, but faithlessness and, and certainly not uh, enough belief that I felt like I could go into ministry. And, and, and weirdly, I think that's actually what pushed me down a more secular path into, into oncology. I've since come to kind of reconcile uh, my faith in my work. But at the time, I think that's actually why I was swayed away from following this um, paternal example into the ministry. Um, also, his oncologist was a spectacular mentor to me, so he actually took me under his wing. Every summer in high school and college, I got to work in his clinic, um, sort of worked my way up the ranks. I was a medical assistant, and I did x-ray technician work for a while, and I got to see him um, basically from the other side. He was just wonderful um, uh, to me and my family, very supportive. Um, I think in hindsight, probably blamed himself a little bit about um, my dad's diagnosis and how it was handled. But regardless, um, he just really um, was massively influential on my decision to go into oncology. I really got to see that personal relationship he cultivated with patients and their families. What year did your father get diagnosed with a neuroendocrine tumor? 1987 was when we immigrated from Scotland. I see. And um, and you mentioned to me before we started that he passed away in 1994. That's right. Yeah, I was a freshman in high school. Um, so there was a lot of adolescent angst, as you can imagine. Uh-huh. Um, and again, at the time, um, I was just getting into you know, the science uh, in my high school classes and, and really enjoying it and finding some explanations there for what had happened to uh, my dad. Um, the story gets a little bit deeper in that um, you know, we were told that this was a completely sporadic event, just, just bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years later, my paternal uncle, my father's brother, developed a very specific uh, visual deficit, which was 
bitemporal hemianopsia. And mm-hmm. uh, he was a driving instructor. So that was gland. exactly. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a problem for him because he started clipping uh, cars on the side of the road. So mm. it was very bad for his uh, occupational success. And he got diagnosed with a pituitary macroadenoma and died actually of pituitary apoplexy. Mm. Um, and so that of also apoplexy, s- really? Yeah, exactly. So that, that also mm. seemed like an unfortunate catastrophe to befall this family. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, as I was starting my fellowship in oncology at the Mayo Clinic, I developed really significant uh, abdominal pain and uh, went to seek medical attention, found that I was hypercalcemic. And that's actually when everything clicked for me because... Mm, you had hyperparathyroidism. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And my dad had had hypercalcemia as well, and, and long before his bone mm-hmm. mats. So I, I, I knew enough. <laughs> it's yeah. Medical trivia can save your life, as it turns out. I knew enough that uh, it was very uh, unlikely that this would just be happening sporadically, these consecutive generations of hypercalcemia. And I knew about familial hypocalcuric hypercalcemia, and I also knew about MEN1. And mm-hmm. I realized all of a sudden, kind of put all the pieces together, the weird endocrine tumor, the pituitary macroadenoma, the consecutive generations of hypercalcemia, I realized this was MEN1. So my very first week of fellowship, <laughs> I went to my Mayo-assigned internist with this concern. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, it was very um, instructive to me as to how we listen to our patients or don't. I was almost immediately labeled as a hypochondriac. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, I can't really blame the internist. You have a mm-hmm. uh, oncology fellow in mm-hmm. the first week of his training coming in thinking he has a hereditary tumor syndrome. Um, but I was able to uh, persist and uh, insist that I get the testing. And, and sure enough, I was found to have MEN1. And the case eventually got written up as a medical mystery in the New York Times. And the title of the article is Nerves or Something Worse. And so, again, by all accounts, I was just an overly anxious trainee but in fact it was this germline syndrome mm. rearing its ugly head in in uh, in me and this became an article by lisa sanders that's exactly right yeah mm. yeah and I, and what i'm really will eternally be disappointed about benai is that if house had been on for one more season apparently i would have been an episode of house but <laughs> really yeah that would really have been my my uh, claim, claim to, to fame, fame. yeah mm-hmm. I don't know where to begin. It's so fascinating. I guess I'd say, I mean, your father passed away at a young age. He was just less than 50 years old mm-hmm. when he passed right. away. Yeah. And, and, and it was you who figured this out uh, by yourself as a fellow in your first year of fellowship. But in all those years in between, you probably didn't have a good understanding of why this befell your father. And he was a religious man, so he might have had his own ideas for why this might have happened. And, you know, now that you're an oncologist, you probably tell patients the same thing I tell patients, which is, you know, to some degree, we know that cancer is influenced by environmental risk factors. And, you know, let me let me pause there a second. Actually, actually, the first thing you do with a patient we have with cancer is the first thing you do is you think about genetic syndromes. But far too often in our clinics, you're nodding that, you know, that there is nothing that fits with the family history that you're hearing about, you know, an uncle who may have had lung cancer, but is a heavy smoker, uh, somebody, distant relative who may have had cervical cancer, um, and then a patient in front of you who may have colorectal cancer. I mean, it doesn't fit any sort of known cancer syndrome pattern. And so then you often tell people probably what I tell people, which is that we know there's some environmental risk factors, and you can go through those. And typically, they offer a modest contribution, not a great contribution. But then so much of it is just sort of bad luck or randomness. And, and you know, as a doctor, um, that's easy to say, but as a person hearing that, that might be hard to hard to hear and hard to make sense of. And so often people do look for the next level. How was it in your family? How, how did your father deal with it? Yeah, you know, again, he didn't have the, the benefit of um, sort of looking at the, all the 
the pieces of the pattern that I got to see. I often think of it of looking at the stars and, and a constellation jumping out at you. That's how I feel about MEN1. And I think it was really only when I was personally affected that this um, became more evident. So again, I, I absolutely do not blame his oncologist. I don't think he had all the necessary facts to, to make the diagnosis. Um, you know, my father, again, he was remarkably faithful throughout. Um, he continued to teach at, at seminary and, you know, um, actually told his students who were you know, praying particularly fervently for him, you know, he said, why, why not me? You know, why, why should I be spared, um, you know, misfortune that bedevils my brothers and sisters? And, and particularly he thought about catastrophes that give you no forewarning of your own mortality. So, you know, he really uh, invoked a lot of um, natural disasters and car accidents and, and things that claim people's lives without the ability to, to prepare for the end. And he really viewed, I think, with remarkable clarity, you know, the, the end of his life is an opportunity to take stock. He wrote a book, which was then published posthumously. And I've learned a lot about that from the enduring um, ability of, of text to convey messages long after we're gone. I think social media seems very ephemeral, but in fact, we're, we're saying things that might, might persist in memory for, for some time to come. Hmm. Um, but back to your point about how I cancel patients, you know, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee in The Gene distills it down to a formula that I've actually found quite helpful to discuss with patients, which is, you know, genotype plus environment plus triggers plus chance. And I find that's a, f- a fairly uh, expansive way of looking at how all these risks are, are summative. I think that last part, chance, is, is the part that we have the hardest time with. It's essentially the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And it's very unsatisfactory, I think, to our intellect to invoke that. It's hard for patients, too, to accept that this is just, you know, they've been dealt the, the wrong hand. But Ultimately, I think it's important to unburden them of the feeling this is something they brought on themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the nasty um, underbelly of a lot of complementary and alternative medicine is this notion that the patients must have done something wrong that they now need to remedy when they're diagnosed. And as you and I know, unfortunately, it's again, it's just cruel twists of fate that often lead patients into our into our clinics. And so I, I really try very, very hard um, to make sure that they don't feel unnecessarily guilty. You know, non-smokers get lung cancer too. And I think uh, in there, we, we know that there's only so far that we can um, tie someone's lifestyle to the cancer that they get. The other thing I'll say just on that note, Vinay, is the social history used to, in my opinion, be a lot uh, more rich in how we explored patients' identities. I think in EMRs, it's become a fairly reductive checklist of vices, you know, non-smoker, mm-hmm. non-drinker, and that's mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, with copy and paste culture, that just tends to get um, propagated. And we, we very rarely actually, I think, perform a, a true social history these days. And if we do, we almost never revisit it after that initial contact. And I think there's something lost there. The oncologist that I followed during high school and college he would do marginalia in, in the paper record where, where every visit he would note down something about that patient's identity, about their family, about their job, and he would always return to it. And at the time, I'll be honest, I even thought it was a little bit of a contrivance, but now I realize that he was really trying to flesh out a picture um, in his head of who they were. And you know, by revisiting that at every appointment, he grounded himself and he also established a, a truly genuine connection with the patient and the family. So it's hard to do that as an aid memoir in the EMR these days, but it is um, not a trick. It's a, a, a hopefully a very genuine effort that I make too to try to find at least one aspect of that person that makes them unique. And then every visit, I try to come back to that so they know that they're more than just you know, an encounter number in the computer or just a generating data for me to interpret. Hmm, that's well put. I mean, I sort of see that as one of the great pleasures, the unspoken pleasures of being a physician is that 
you can sit in the room with somebody who may have lived this life where they were, uh, you know, uh, a lumberjack in Oregon or a, a deep sea underwater welder in the in the Alaskan Sound. And, and you just get glimpses into what that was like and what those years were like and what that job was like and what life was like. Uh, and it's a real, it's a pleasure and a privilege, I think, because how many people have the luxury of meeting people from such a broad cross-section of society and, and just getting to talk to them about their lives as part of our job, you know? Uh, and, and in doing so, I think, do our job even better, have a richer relationship with that person. So I imagine you take pleasure in that in your patients as well? I do, yeah. And, you know, when I was in medical school, actually long after I'd committed mentally and emotionally to oncology, they taught us, which I think is born true, that short of um, psychologists and psychiatrists, we develop the closest longitudinal relationships with our patients. And I think it's because things are so high stakes and intense much of the time. Um, And, you know, that's just a very valuable and, and you're right, intangible um, benefit of the job is is being allowed um, the privilege of access to these people often when they are at their most vulnerable and it you know I guess it it's most emotionally fraught it is serial heartbreak we meet these people and we know that our time with them may be limited but that also makes that time all the more um, valuable uh, and and you're right to be to be let in and to hear their stories for however long uh, it really is uh, an absolute uh, privilege my father said that the this was a quote from his book, that the crisis of cancer affords the opportunity now, however brief or lengthy, to take every moment relationship and fill it with meaning, intensity, and value. Uh, and I think that stands true regardless of, of what you do, but particularly it's resonated with me in oncology and it sort of reassured this prodigal son in a weird way. I've sort of come back to a form of ministry. Even if I'm not a pastor myself, I think there's a lot of aspects of pastoral care and oncology in its best incarnation. And so that's I guess assuage my guilt that <laughs> I'm uh, breaking this this chain of, of ministers on my dad's side. I want to, and you know, I wanted to come back to that in a second. But one of the other things you said that struck a chord with me is this idea that chance is one of the hardest things to convey to somebody, and and I think that makes sense in our society because, you know, even physicians, especially people who are not physicians, we have a very difficult time thinking probabilistically about events that befall us. All of the successes and good things that happen in our lives are due to our effort, our hard work, our motivation, when in reality we all know there's likely a great deal of serendipity that went into those events. Similarly, all of the negative things that happen in our lives, the tragedies, um, the diseases that befall us, we like to ascribe meaning as people to think that maybe it was related to something I did or something somebody did to me, when in reality it also so often is just the randomness of life. Um, Did medicine help you see the randomness of life? It did, yeah. And, you know, again, I think my father was the perfect example. It It was hard to think of someone more virtuous than him. And again, without judging other people, he was just very... Um, pure, almost ascetic in his discipline, and, and to see that he could become so uh, unhealthy so quickly uh, just really uh, impressed upon me how, how fragile our health is and, and how little actually we might be able to exert control over it. Of course, it doesn't entirely um, mean we need to abdicate responsibility for taking care of ourselves mm-hmm. and exercising and eating right, but you can do all those things. And I think we all have examples in our clinic of like, you know, a triathlete with incredible, you know, uh, 
body fat ratio who still develops metastatic esophageal cancer have had that exact patient. And so yeah. I think that shows you that there is a certain aspect where we, we are out of um, control of our own, own fate. And it's funny you mentioned statistics. I think a lot of what we have to do as oncologists is relay numbers to patients in a manner that's meaningful, but uh, again, isn't over-promising or becoming a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've increasingly shied away from median survivals mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because I, I find that that number becomes fixed in a patient's head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and even though I, I try to stress that there's, there's people on the other side of that bell curve, oftentimes people will become quite fatalistic and that will become the number that they just are absolutely uh, fixated upon. So it's a tricky business we're in trying to relay numbers that are, of course, aggregate to individual cases. And I, I'd, I'd love to know how, how you best do that. No, that's a, I, I would love to know how you do that. So <laughs> I guess I'd say that I think um, I will admit that I, I don't know if there's a right way to do it. And I am constantly tinkering with my own approach um, because it, at that kind for that kind of thing, tinkering is probably the best we can hope for. But I agree with you 100% that um, based on experience and and that when you give somebody a single number, people anchor to that. And I cannot tell you how many times somebody walked into my office who had previously seen a different physician and said, did you know the doctor gave me X months to live and now look at me now. Yes. Um, and, and to which I always say, you know, I say a few things to patients. I say, one, I, I don't like to do it on the first visit. I like to have some rapport with somebody before we start talking about prognosis because I think it goes a lot further if people trust you. Yeah. Um, and, and and I also want to inquire to know that's something that that person wants to know. Yes, yes. And I don't want to tell somebody something they don't want to know. And I appreciate that some people might not want to know. And I can imagine even myself, there are situations where there are things I don't want to know. And that's also why I don't have, you know, that's why I'm not undergoing all these genetic tests. You know, like, right? you know there's a lot of things I don't want to know about myself. You're not, uh, you're not signing up for a whole body MRI tomorrow. Correct. Yeah. I know, although I see it advertised uh, recently <laughs> on Twitter. Um, and then what I try to do is to explain that what I want to do is I want us to hope for the best, but I want to give you the opportunity to prepare for the worst. And I think that I have a duty to give you that chance. And preparing for the worst means doing all the things in one's life outside of medicine that I think are important. If I knew I had some range of time to be around, there are some things that I need to take care of that are personal, financial, um, those kinds of things, um, dotting I's, crossing T's. And so then what I do, having done that, is I try to offer something like the 20th to 80th percentile. And and I'm very careful not to usually go to the 5th and 99th percentile. Yes. Because I think that's also not where the majority of people have their, sure. their outcomes. The 20th to 80th percentile, maybe the, the 25th to 75th, the 15th to 85th, something like that. Yeah. To give a range of like, you know, what might it be on the short end? What might it be on the long end, realistically? Yes. Um, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. No, uh, I, yeah. I really like that approach. It allows a, a couple of uh, standard deviations around, yeah, right. around the mean, right? And, you know, I, I've heard this phrase used recently, and I really like it, the notion of legacy building. And, you know, so I'm a, I'm a GI oncologist, and, and one of the things that's so sobering uh, in my practice is to realize that, that many of the people that meet me, especially with stage 4 disease, do have a, a limited life expectancy. And again, how to convey that in a manner that allows them to prepare appropriately. And so I've actually talked a lot in, in increasingly shifting this conversation earlier, although I know that sounds uh, quite drastic, to make sure that they are having time to take care of exactly the things you're talking about. And again, I think about my own father. He had this manuscript that he'd been working on as a scholar for years. And then when his oncologist clarified that things were indeed getting worse, 
um, and I know you're a writer as well, that really accelerated his work and allowed him to complete his book before his death, which was an incredibly important um, feat for him. And, and it's actually when I heard him do, so his study was adjacent to my childhood bedroom and he wrote his book largely on, on typewriter. typewriter. So, so I could actually hear, hear him doing it, yeah. And he, and he would do it late into the night and, and he really... Um, wrote with a man who, who knew that um, this was this is a finite opportunity, and you know I think if we if we hold out the myth of you know indefinite um, survival, of course none of us live up to that, um, then I think we actually are doing our patients a disservice. I think that's what makes me most nervous when I get into say the third or fourth lines of advanced GI malignancy is that we know that the survival benefit of these drugs can be incredibly meager, and again over promising what we can deliver. Uh, may actually deprive our patients of the opportunity to do exactly these sort of legacy building uh, exercises. So you're saying your father's oncologist told him that uh, you know his time was limited, and that encouraged your father to to work on his book. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you read the book when breath becomes air. I have. Yeah. And actually, uh, Lucy uh, Paul's uh, widow has um, been very kind to me on Twitter. I uh-huh. know you and I are, are both in that space, and I think we both experienced some. Extremes. Uh, I've had some very, very positive experiences in Twitter and some very, very negative ones. And the limited communication I've had with her has just been absolutely wonderful. And I had to tell her how meaningful uh, Paul's um, book was to me. Because, again, I think he wrote with the urgency a man who knew, who knew that his time was running out. I, I found it to be a splendid book. Um, and uh, But there was one part that stuck with me in the book where I feel as if the oncologist sort of let him believe that he had more time than he had. And that might have led him to make decisions he otherwise wouldn't have, which is one would be go back to residency, neurosurgical residency, which we all know what that's like. Um, so I do wonder if maybe he was a bit deprived of that opportunity that the, that your father had. Yeah. I think the um, the part of the book that has stuck with me ever since I read it was the, his um, message to his daughter, who yeah. you know he knew at the time, of course, was just an infant and wouldn't be able to read those words. But he he's created again such a a lasting um, piece of work that she can return to as she ages. And it's actually been the same with my father's book. So it means a lot um, more and, and, and different things to me now than it did when I was a, you know, a sullen teenager. I can really read his words now through the prism of some more experience, hopefully a little bit more wisdom. Um, and so I actually someday hope to do the same for my own children. I've been working on my diaries as a patient physician because I've seen my entire oncology career now through the prism of having MEN1. Um, and so I, I hope that one day I can get that into uh, into print for them. That would be lovely. I mean, I think that, you know, we no matter what someone does in, in, in medicine, um, if you want a window into how someone thinks and who they are, there's no substitute for reading what they actually wrote. Yes. And, you know, in our profession, it's so difficult to do that because so often people, what they say they wrote and what they actually wrote are so disparate. Um, But when you can read what somebody wrote, uh, whether that is about how they treat first-line colon cancer or how they think about meaning at the end of life or what they think the good life means and how to pursue it, um, you get a window into how they think, how they view the world, and and you're richer for it, I think. Um, And and sometimes that's why you may even feel more intimate with someone whose work you've read uh, than even somebody you've known for many years with whom you've never had those kind of discussions, you've never talked about those things. That's exactly right. I know you had uh, David uh, Steensma on your podcast, and he um, preceded me at Mayo, and I I read his work with um, just an absolute... fandom uh, yes. and yeah. and he has articulated so beautifully um you know the the humanism of our profession 
one of his favorite essays uh, that still resonates with me. I think he published it in 2001 called The Narrow Path. Mm-hmm. He talks about navigating the uh, Scylla and, and, and Charybdis of, of oncology where, you know, if we're completely insensate and just sort of, you know, statistic spewing scientists, then we're missing a really profound human connection. On the other hand, if we make ourselves entirely vulnerable, uh, we're going to be grieving constantly yes. um, uh, for our patients. And so there's a, a not happy medium, but there is a, a very... Uh, very slim tightrope to walk between those two extremes. And I think that's the ongoing challenge of, of being a, a human in oncology. And so often I think people tell me that that's one of the reasons they don't like the field. They chose a different path because they didn't want to walk that tightrope and they were worried that they would drift perhaps towards feeling too much probably. Yeah. Um, but I do think, I don't know how to put this, I feel like there is something of meaningful to try to walk that rope uh that that gives me purpose and that that's something i strive to do better and that i feel my life would be a little bit empty if i didn't have that struggle if that weren't part of my job yeah it's and it's something you know i know you've also talked about you know what makes a a good candidate for fellowship i i think um i've realized the longer i've i've done this that emotional resilience is really really important and Mm -hmm. i don't know how you quantify that or um, single that out in an applicant, I think it's actually maybe on us to, to ready people to realize what it is they're actually signing up for, which is that, you know, we often are um, very interested in the science of oncology, but its practical application requires a completely different um, emotional element that you really do have to be uh, prepared for. Um, and, and again, calibrate your own responses. I. I try when I can to uh, go to my patients' funerals. Um, I don't always get to do that. Uh, but I find when I do, it allows me to appropriately memorialize that that patient who I've lost. I don't really love the word closure, but I suppose it is tying a little bit of um, a knot uh, in our relationship. And then I can take that and move on to the next patient. I think it's the compartmentalization that's really tricky. Mm-hmm. I even run into this in clinic. I, I'm sure you've had the experience, too, of whipsawing from a patient where you're getting them. Yeah, the worst news of their life. Exactly. To the best news exactly, of their life. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and just that momentary pause you need outside the room to sort of reset, you know, put on the appropriate countenance. I, I think that that is um, something that you only learn over time, and it's really, really hard to explain that to someone that's just starting on oncology. But I think that's the part of the job that um, uh, is, is probably the most difficult, but also makes you feel the most like a real person. You know, I, somebody was telling me this recently, and I guess I'm not endorsing this to be true, but I want to offer this view. Um, this person t- was telling me, sort of similar to what you were saying, which is that they believe that one of the most important characteristics for a physician is emotional resilience slash practicality, um, that that's a very important trait. And then this person said that everything we've done in the last 20 years in medical education has selected against this. Mm-hmm. It used to be the case that you would take somebody who had never worked in a lab, who may have worked in the grocery store as a cashier, um, you know, or as a bagger, as I worked when I was in high school, uh, who worked in fast food, who may have had odds and, and jobs, um, you know, who who thought they might like to be a doctor and did, you know, fairly decent in school. They're not, they're, they may not have been the valedictorian, but they certainly were no slouch. And you allowed that person to go to medical school. Um, but now we live in a world that's hyper-competitive, where I got an email from somebody and they said, I'm a sophomore, I want to work in your lab. But it was a sophomore in high school, you know? And I was thinking, what was I doing when I was a sophomore in high school? And there was like many things I can't tell you about on this podcast. Um, but those things mattered. Um, yeah. 
And and so this person's theory was that, you know, it's an arms race. Students come in. Residents have more publications than I did when I was a first-year faculty member. Soon it'll be students with more publications than I did as an assistant professor. You know, they just keep ratcheting this up. Their summers are spent in labs. They um, When they travel abroad, it's only under the provenance of a medical mission or uh, something to put on your CV. Yes. Everything is so calculative uh, about getting into medical school, in part because it takes a lot more to get into medical school. They study more for the test. And what they're missing is we're missing giving people the chance of learning those things in life, this person's theory goes, that give them emotional resilience, which is meeting people who come from different socioeconomic classes, who have different struggles in life, who deal with things as a teenager that maybe no teenagers ever have to deal with. Um, and seeing that in your life and trying to process that, I don't know, does this strike a chord with you to some degree? Oh, absolutely. I think I think we fall um, quite easily into the uh, the McNamara fallacy, right? Mm-hmm. Of only liking the things that we can Measure. quantify. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a, there's a messiness to, you know, personality and character that uh, I, I understandably, you know, is... Uh, makes life more difficult for you know residency and fellowship directors, but I really think there's you're absolutely right. There's a there's a piece there that we're uh, missing, and, and you know it's inherently difficult to articulate. I'm always interested to ask people, you know, what was it that drew them to oncology in the first place? You know, I think some of our colleagues again, it's the fact that this is such a, a fast paced area of, of progress, and and they're attracted to the science. Other people, and I think I'm probably more in this boat, are really. Um, into the humanistic aspects yeah. of, of the discipline. But you, once you understand someone's motivation, I think you have a better idea of how that's going to um, sustain them. And you know, I know that we are um, subject to all manner of really discouraging conspiracy theories on the internet. And I, I know we have to be very, very careful with our relationship with pharma because there's this notion that we have the cure and we're hiding it for enormous profit. Right. But I think the more we can be clear about our motives and try to make them as unimpeachable as possible, the more likely we are to win sort of the public relations battle, if you will. I think oncologists have have suffered um, from some of our relationship with industry because I think it's only, unfortunately, validated some of these uh, conspiracy theories. Exactly. So it, it doesn't take me too long in knowing a patient to relay if they're interested my own um, background a lot of them it's interesting have done their homework on me i don't know what your experience mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. have looked me up online and actually know about my family background and miami and one long before i would ever bring it up certainly don't want the appointments to be about me mm-hmm. but to again come across as authentic and empathetic sometimes this does come up in conversation um particularly my gi patients a lot of them are uh, very eager to have curative surgery um, I've been through a Whipple myself two yeah. years ago, and that was an enormous investment of, of time and energy. And so, I, you know, again, I try to be very careful um, in telling them, you know, be careful what you wish for, um, because especially, you know, if we're dealing with oligometastatic disease and you go through a big surgery, that may come at some short and long-term cost. And so I think there is a time where it's appropriate to share your own experience, and especially if you need to sort of demonstrate to someone that your motivations are pure and not financially driven. You mentioned your your Whipple. I understand that you, after you made the diagnosis of MEN one, of course, you were very vigilant for early pancreatic neoplasms, and in fact, after a while, you found that you had an IPMN. Uh, that's exactly right, and it degenerated into um, malignant PNAD. Mm. Um, and and I and I realize I need to be very careful here. There's been a, a very um, interesting conversation recently around pancreatic screening. Yes. <laughs> I think you know the the work yes. in JAMA that I'm referring yeah. to. Yeah. Um, in this case, you know, because I identified a germline defect, the first thing I did was have my hyperparathyroidism corrected, and then I 
uh, turn my attention to my pancreas. And because I was at Mayo, I was actually given access to a variety of uh, surgical opinions. And I say variety because it was interesting. Everyone I went to really told me to do something different. So there were some people who advocated for total pancreatectomy. Okay. Said if you do this, you completely eliminate your risk of PNET, which was true. But I would also instantly become a brutal diabetic. And, yes, and, and uh, likely actually suffer a shortened life expectancy from that. Right. Um, and then other people just said, well, you should just be you know, uh, purely on surveillance for now. And so I used endoscopic ultrasound to minimize my own iatrogenic right. radiation burden. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. I, I followed myself for years um, with the help of my gastroenterologist until finally one of the tumors really reached a tipping point where it started growing much more rapidly. And that's what triggered my surgery. And um, I was very lucky. My hospital, Intermountain, agreed to tweet my surgery. And so I went to them, the social media department there, um, about a week or so before the operation, had buy-in from my surgeon and said, hey, listen, I really would like this to be an educational opportunity because the Whipple is one of those fearsome eponyms. Um, and I, I wanted to demystify the process. And so mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to have their backing. And so they had uh, people taking pictures and uh, writing descriptive tweets all through the surgery. And so actually, actually, I can now go back and sort of revisit that. It's like an out-of-body experience. But I'm very glad that I did because um, it's actually allowed me to, um, again, demonstrate to my own patients that I've, I've been through this mm-hmm. a little bit myself. But also for people that really want to understand what they're investing in that procedure, which is a life-changing surgery, mm-hmm. I really wanted them to understand the, the length and complexity of the operation. It's one that carries high mm-hmm. morbidity and mortality. Um, it's very interesting to hear how those risks were conveyed to me as a patient. And I've realized some of the statistics we rattle off somewhat dismissively, they loom large when you're facing a, mm-hmm. a life-changing procedure. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the night before, you know, I'd been told, you know, 3% uh, on-table mortality. And I was totally accepting of that right up until yeah. the the eve of the surgery. And all of a sudden, that seemed like a not insubstantial risk. So right. I've been very, very careful since then in uh, how I conveyed numbers. And I try not to minimize too much uh, substantial risk to my patients. When you knew you were headed for a surgery, um, were there differences of opinions as to what surgery you actually needed or did everyone recommend the Whipple? Yeah, everyone at that point recommended the Whipple. Again, the total pancreatectomy had come up as really a prophylactic maneuver years earlier. But at that point, I mean, I was barely in my fellowship. It seemed like such a substantial, exactly an excessive uh, investment, if you will, in in my future, and again, a future. It seemed like I was going to foreshorten, so I wasn't willing to do that. Um, but again, I I realized that um, you know when we when we talk about surgery to our patients, we ha- we have to be very clear about what we're offering them. So in my case, I have not eliminated my entire risk. I've just taken care of the most uh, dangerous part of my pancreas. I still have peanuts remnant in my in my tail, mm-hmm. and um, and so that's the other part is I have to relate to patients. I'm okay actually knowing that there are these neoplasms in my body that could grow. Um, I personally accepted surveillance. I don't think that's something many people um, or some people ever come to peace with is the notion that there's something wrong that they can just monitor. I think there is a, a strong push to do something, and it's. Uh, the same therapeutic problem we run into, just because we can do something doesn't necessarily mean that we should. But patients, I think, often feel pushed um, to, to act uh, when actually it may be much more prudent simply to observe. Mm. I think, obviously, the case that comes to mind is just the rate of bilateral double mastectomy for DCIS yes. in this country, which is you know, an order of magnitude higher than any other nation, which is, speaks to the fact that people are not comfortable with the idea that some things require observation. And I can understand why that's an unsettling thought. Um, 
but you know, even for somebody at average risk, somebody who has no germline defect, one could remove organs to lower risk of cancer. And you know, we wrote this paper called The Modest Proposal recently, where we we outlined some of the mathematical reductions in risk that would happen if somebody were willing to have a prophylactic prostatectomy or uh, a prophylactic pneumonectomy if you have good lung function in the other lung. And indeed, you would lower the risk, but w are we willing to pay that price? And, and I think the answer is no. But then somewhere along the way, if somebody is a germline BRCA1 mutant carry with a strong family history, you know, the data is suggestive that prophylactic oophorectomy is a life-saving intervention. So right. there's some continuum here where the risk does justify it. Um, and of course, the challenge in the modern world of genetics is that although we think we know which gene has which level of risk, there is a gene-environment interaction, and there may be other off-target genes that we don't yet know the full implications of. And so the future, we may be able to revise these risks rather dramatically, and, and people may have made different decisions had they known different things. That's exactly right. And in fact, I've even seen that in the um, MEN1 population. Mm. So one of the things about the syndrome that's interesting is there's no genotype-phenotype correlation. So it's extremely common for the patients I work with in various support groups to um, take their family members history and then kind of map it onto their own and assume that they'll have the same problems at the same ages and it's just not true at all but it's such a powerful effect on how they perceive their own risk and so again we have to be very very careful uh, not to play God and, and think that we can see the future so clearly that we're advising them to undertake these life-changing procedures. And are there common recurrent mutations in men in or? Are, yeah. yeah so there, there, there are definitely um, mutations that are more frequent than others. Interesting enough, you know, there's a lot of argument about, you know, are certain exons riskier or truncating mutations like yeah. mine riskier? Frankly, through extensive work of national registries in Europe, there doesn't actually appear to be any sort of way to predict how, again, one person's mutation is going to affect their lifespan or their uh, phenotypic manifestations. And so it remains uh, an area that's, that's frustratingly nebulous. Um, again, I think careful monitoring with methods that don't add iatrogenic risk. Uh, is really the, be the best way forward. I've been very fortunate to be able to follow myself with MRI, EUS, and lab work. Mm. You grew up in a spiritual family, um, and you talked about how when your father became ill, you maybe had a crisis of faith. Yeah. Has your faith been restored over the years? It has. I mean, I... I I, uh, I've, I've come to, you know, believe that, and this is going to sound very cliche, but, you know, the value of life is not in its indefinite longevity. Um, my father liked to say that, you know, we're not guaranteed um, three score years and ten, uh, <laughs> like it says in the Psalms. Um, and I, I really like the way that you put it earlier about, you know, counseling your patients on, you know, the, the range around the mean. Again, I think we get so caught up in averages and the usual life expectancy that they, we then understandably will feel shortchanged if our experience is any shorter than that. But, you know, I've known patients younger than myself who have passed away from the disease who were able to extract such meaning and lasting impact from their lives that it, it's it's a, a privilege of, of the healthy to say this. But, you know, I think that the, the value is not in the in the length, it's in the, the, the quality. And mm -hmm. that's, again, why, you know, as oncologists, and I know you believe this, we have to be so careful with the burdens that not the disease but our treatments impose on our mm -hmm. patients um, one of the things that's really weighed on my conscience as a GI oncologist has been the burden of um, neuropathy uh, mm -hmm. on, on my patients particularly oxaliplatin precisely and um, and so I have 
been very cognizant now in my practice about, you know, if I'm treating someone with palliative intent, what is the trade-off there between, you know, extending their life but making them miserable in the process? And you know, I trained at Mayo, which is a major myeloma center. One of my um, faculty there appropriately chastised me once when I presented to him a case and said that they only had, had grade two neuropathy mm-hmm. from Vor- from Belcade. Precisely, and he mm-hmm. said, "Do you know what?" grade two neuropathy is yeah. and so I you know had to remember you know, that's you know severe paresthesias and or mild weakness and so from then on I really looked at um, adverse events differently um, again I try not to minimize uh, even quote low-grade toxicity for my patients and getting back to your question it's because I believe that especially for people who we think have a limited lifespan um, and, and, it's, and it's tough for us to admit this but sometimes you know we are first doing harm by by treating um, and I think that the real meaning comes in you know, what they do with those remaining days. And again, that, that goes back to our earlier point about being as clear as we can about prognosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right, the, the happiest phone calls I get actually are when I've enrolled someone on hospice and I get a call six months later saying, would you like to re-enroll this patient mm-hmm. because they're thriving? Yeah. And that always teaches me something about the limits of my gaze. But I've learned that um, you know, the patients who have the clearest sense of their own mortality are often then best able to use the time that's remaining to them. I agree with you 100%. And I wonder, in, so in response to the neuropathy, has your practice changed? For instance, are you more likely to give full theory in the front line in colon cancer in metastatic setting? Or do you use Optimox strategy? Yeah, I've actually, I, I think we'll come to think of oxaliplatin much the same way we think about um, adriamycin, where I think a lot of people have sort of a lifetime threshold of mm-hmm. what they can handle. So I almost never give more than eight cycles of full dose oxaliplatin to a metastatic patient. After that, I just think it's diminishing returns. Yeah both from a uh, cytotoxic perspective, but also the the dramatically higher likelihood that you're going to give them serious neuropathy, yeah. which then in turn, right, it's a domino effect because the person that's crippled by their neuropathy, their performance status is going to drop. We know the other outcomes are going to be yeah. deleteriously affected. And so, you know, that's the drug that I think in GI oncology has been really troublesome. It's also been um, a nice counterpoint to this whole argument that we're, you know, in bed with pharma when, you know, two years ago, ASCO plenary session, you know, we were all celebrating the fact that now we had justification to give many patients a shorter course. Three cycles. Of exactly. Yeah, the, yeah. Idea, the idea trial. Yeah. Um, it, you know, similarly out of uh, Taylor X, the insight that we could give women less chemotherapy also with breast cancer and certain recurrence scores. You know, I think these are lovely arguments that, you know, we're not in this just to give as much chemo to everybody possible. We really are interested in being judicious and minimizing our toxicities. And again, we are human beings. We're vulnerable to bias, but we're also vulnerable to guilt. And I think what I've learned over the years is, um, again, to, to try to be more preventative with toxicity than trying to restore function that I might have irreversibly robbed the patient of. Yeah. I think that's, uh, the experience that I think many of us share. And I think, um, you know, when I travel in Canada and in Western Europe, so often their response to oxaliplatin neuropathy has been to go with a full theory, then full Fox strategy. Um, but, you know, this idea of conspiracy theory you raise, I guess I want to say that, um, you know, when people tell me that, and people do tell me that, especially when they kind of see this kinds of research I do, they think, oh, of course, this guy's going to be interested in hearing about conspiracy theory. And what I want to say is, like, look, if you're trying to make the point that the in, the industry's influence in oncology is pervasive and leads to many things that run counter to patients' best interests, sign me up. You know, I agree 100%, and I can see many, many instances where that is true. 
But one of the things that that's probably not true is that there is no magic cure that people are holding out on you. The truth is that the way in which the system is biased is very, very complicated and nuanced. And you're going to have to understand a lot if you really want to see the quote-unquote conspiracy. So what might be the quote-unquote conspiracy? It is that you know when clinical trials are run, they are tend not they tend to run in the broadest inclusion criteria possible to get the smallest statistically significant benefit because they want the largest market share. People are not going to voluntarily come up with biomarkers to reduce a market share. We need sort of third party entities to do that. People are going to pick the weakest control arms. They're going to run non inferiority studies with large deltas. These are all, I think, form of conspiracy, like things not in your best interest, but they're very nuanced and tricky. But the idea that there's like a magic cure, that's a very sort of um, you know naive way of looking at oncology, uh, and that's obviously wrong. I think it's not the the major barrier to developing new therapies. But um, but I am sympathetic that I think the biases are really problematic. Yes, and again, I, I think that has only um, deepened the suspicion of people who are always prone, already prone to mistrusting us. And it's funny, I mean, I, I've thought about the mechanics of having that sort of grand cabal, right, with pharma, the, 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 the vastness that that would require for us to you know, pull off this right. hiding the cure. And then really where the logic becomes faulty is if, you know, we were that avarice driven, you know, a cure like that would be worth, you know, trillions. Um, and I know people say, oh, well, if you, if you cure someone, then they're, they're not a patient in your market anymore. There just, it, there does come a point where, you know, you have to say, listen, I, I can only ask you to trust me so far. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm honestly not doing this for um, reasons of, of greed or, or personal gain. Um, but it is these relationships with pharma that make people start to doubt our, our true good intentions. And I know that you're, one of your, your missions is sort of shining a light on those relationships. Yeah, I guess I'm critical because that the amount of money exchanged and the confidence lost, it's not worth it. You know, that's my bottom line. It's, it's better to just divest from these relationships so we take away one piece of ammunition. You know, sometimes when people are critical of... Um, you know, say, for instance, there's a political figure whose son is uh, appears to be a screw up, but somehow manages to get $50,000 a month from a foreign government. Um, you know, that doesn't look good. I mean, you know, you know <laughs> the if, optics if, are wrong. Optics yeah. are wrong. Yeah. yeah. And so somebody's like, oh, you know, it's all legal. It's all legal. It's like, look, yeah, it's all yeah. legal. But look, that doesn't look good. Right. So cut that cut that out. Um, you know, if you're a political figure, tell your kids to go up and get a, get a real job. You know, I mean, just don't live off the family name. Uh, so, I mean, that kind of thing. And similarly in oncology, you know, oncologists are generally well compensated. So I think the optics of it and the fact that there are subtle forms of bias that it does lead to, is, you know, it's just not worth it. Um, but I guess, you know, hearing your story kind of makes me think about is that even though you broke from a tradition of clergymen, uh, in the modern world where secularism, especially in, in the West, um, is the dominant philosophy, uh, in a way the doctor has replaced the clergy, I think. The doctor is the person for so many people um, who finds themselves in a position uh, to gingerly offer advice about life um, in ways we're never trained to, right. um, but in ways we're obliged to, I feel, um, from should the patient ask you, should I talk to my daughter who I haven't spoken with in 15 years and tell her that I have esophageal cancer? You know, what do you think, doctor? Right. Yeah. And again, I think that's just a, an incredible position that we're put in to be confidants like that. I often you know, think, you know, it, it's a sacrosanct space in the exam room where people are, you know, just unveiling themselves to you, you know, both both physically, but more emotionally and psychologically. And and you're absolutely right, Vinay, that, you know, a lot of our training doesn't focus on those aspects. And I don't want uh, people that are entering the field to be surprised 
by the fact that you are going to have to serve as a counselor of sorts um, to patients and, and their families. Um, again, I, I think you can come to see it, hopefully, as an enormous privilege, but it's one that I do think you have to be um, emotionally prepared for. And, and I think it, it comes, again, through intensity. You know, I think a lot of our, our relationships, that the, the uh, really encouraging outcomes are, are very long-term, but you do have these very intense short-term relationships with patients also, and you really need to pack in a lot to the visits you have with them. That's the other place I think it's so unfortunate that you know, time in every sense can be fleeting with these folks, not just the time that they're left on earth, but the time that we have to visit with them. You really have to be very um, efficient, but not too calculating in mm-hmm. how you use those minutes. Um, and that's a, a, one of the many reasons that the EMR can just be a distraction. If you have it up in the exam room, you really need that face-to-face human connection to have these kind of conversations. I agree 100%. I think they I, I keep praying that someday some of these uh, techies who keep promising me innovation will actually fix uh, the EMR, make it workable. Um, but I, and, again, we can't forget that you know, sort of, it was a compulsory thing that was really forced down our throats through uh, a bunch of reimbursement schemes that came out uh, about a decade ago. But let me ask you, you used to work at MD Anderson. Yes. From what I read, that's the number one cancer center. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It, um, it was a fantastic place to work. It taught me a lot about breadth and depth in Uh oncology. So I had dual appointments in general oncology and then also in GI. This is Mike Fish's division. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, my chairs were um, Mike Fish and then uh, James Yao, Uh respectively. And what I learned was just the challenge of staying up to date in a wide variety of cancers. So in my community practice, I was literally seeing everything. Mm -hmm. The only things I would routinely refer into our main center were say acute leukemia and sarcoma but everything I else I was managing benign hematology too yeah, benign hematology, I also, yeah classical hematology yeah You're a classical yeah. hematologist oh, good. Um, yeah. but then I would go to them in campus and I'd be working with you know world experts in sub sub specialized disease and the joke at Anderson was that we had patients for left-sided renal cell and right-sided renal cell <laughs> right. that wasn't too far off and you know what you would realize working with people is that they were so deep in the field and so they had a very very refined knowledge in this particular area but then if you trying to broaden their scope practice even a little bit so for instance take like a world expert in cholangiocarcinoma and give them dcis right they would very quickly be out of their depth oh yeah um and i I think i realized the tension between quote-unquote community practice this is bad radio because i'm doing air quotes right now but you know i've heard the word community almost used like an epithet yeah. um, by academicians. And I think you have to realize, and, and you know this because we were talking earlier, I understand you, you take care of a wide variety of diseases, that the more cancer you treat, the more difficult it becomes to keep up with the pace of progress and all the nuance. And so I think we really do need one another, meaning I think the community and academic oncologists need one another, but we both need to appreciate what it is that the other one's doing and stay away from tribalism. So my takeaway from MD Anderson was it was increasingly impossible for me to maintain what I thought was adequate expertise in everything I was seeing. I had personal selfish interest in GI, and so when the opportunity arose for me to only treat GI cancer, I had leapt at it. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I'd been well um, trained at Mayo, and I had a good first uh, post-fellowship experience at MD Anderson. I have realized subsequently that um, although I wasn't fully cognizant of it at the time, my patients were selected to be more inclined for trials and uh, to also be later lines of therapy. So there was a certain amount of, I don't mean this. You mean among the people who choose to go to MD Anderson. Precisely, yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of medical tourism there, right? And and people who have the means and also the health to pursue um, Mm -hmm. second and sometimes much 
more multiple lines of uh, opinion um, and uh, all of their protocol options. And so, so you wrote more lawn surf and remdesirimab <laughs> back in those days, huh? That's exactly right. And, and actually, um, so funny you should mention lawn surf. So I was thinking on my way here about, again, how we represent the benefit of drugs to our patients and how savvy patients are becoming these days in reading about drugs that they think might benefit them. So one of my most heartbreaking cases was a young man, he was I think 42 in 2015 with very aggressive metastatic colon cancer, progressed all standards lines of therapy. And he very assiduously followed the development of Lonsurf, then mm-hmm. uh, TAS-102, yeah. almost as if he was a majority stakeholder mm-hmm. in Taiho. He knew all <laughs> the mm-hmm. regulatory steps he was going through and he kept holding out hope that he would get access to that agent. And one of his dying regrets, is he died in the spring of uh, 15, I believe, um, was that he didn't get access to that medication. And now that mm. it's come out and we see how meager yeah, the benefit meager. is, it, again, it's it's kind of like my dad. I wish I could go back and reassure him, you know, it's, it's okay. You're not, you're not missing it's out. It's not going to be a parachute. Degree. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the... That's um, the heartbreaking part. That's yeah. the heartbreaking part. Yeah. And that's where we have to be very careful in how we, and you know this, how we relay information to patients. Yeah. I think we... Um, underestimate their savvy at our peril, but we also need to be really careful not to um, jump to premature conclusions. You know, the classic example would be you know, phase two studies that are trumpeted at uh, ASCO, for instance, yep. and then when the phase three manuscript comes out, it's a negative result. These are the things that, again, can plant seeds of false hope and get our patients overexcited about things that are ultimately not worth their while. You know, I think TAS-102 is a great example because, of course, in the randomized control trial against best supportive care, meager benefit in a very ideal select population. And arguably, the control arm is best supportive care. If you had given those patients 5-FU in a different method like we used to do in the 1990s and 1980s, uh, I don't know if TAS-102 would even win beating 5-FU. Um, but the other thing you said that struck a, a, a nerve, no, it just struck a chord with me, <laughs> uh, not a nerve, a chord. Um, and, and I'll tell you my theory about this, about expertise. I, I believe that um, that there are some tumors in oncology that you need somebody not to make mistakes, obviously. Acute leukemia. If somebody comes in um, with APL and you have somebody who do, who's not comfortable with APL, doesn't make the prompt diagnosis, um, and doesn't know what to do about it, and doesn't know what to do with ATRA if you run into ATRA differentiation syndrome, um, you know, that's not a good place to be. And in fact, a number of studies suggest the outcomes at high-volume leukemia centers is higher. So, I mean, I think leukemia is like one of those things testicle cancer. It's one of those things. If people don't know what to do uh, when the patient gets neutropenic and they're between cycles of BEP, they can kill, you can kill somebody uh, through error. Uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, mm-hmm. a highly curable disease. Um, you, can, you can do a lot of damage if you don't do it perfectly. And so for those, like a lot of centers who care about quality, like Kaiser Permanente, my understanding is anybody in Northern California, Kaiser Permanente, who has testicle cancer, Hodgkin's cancer, gets presented at like some central tumor board with a Hodgkin's lymphoma expert so we can all standardize this and make sure nobody's getting bleo dropped out unnecessarily or, you know, whatever it may be. No one's getting dose reduced unnecessarily or dose delays, which I've seen, of course, when I get secondary referrals and some of these tumor types, things that make you want to pull your hair out and strangle someone. And by that, I mean the other doctor. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's those things. Then I think about diseases that are difficult to treat diseases, like the majority of the diseases that in, are in your domain, cholangio, pancreatic cancer. And I certainly 
know there are some people who do exceptionally well. I tend to believe it's likely the biology that's driving those people's outcomes. And there, I have a theory that I cannot prove, but if I were ever to prove it, if you took those patients who are seeking referral to go to MD Anderson, you just randomize them to your clinic, my clinic, community doctor's clinic, or MD Anderson, I suspect there will be no survival advantage to going to MD Anderson, that the expert, although they may know a lot about you know the TCGA and this disease type, I think, can tell you the top 15 most recurrent mutations, and they can order a whole bunch of tests and do functional screens or whatever, that they cannot at the end of the day come up with better therapeutic options than you and I can think of in our clinic. And so, you know, obviously, if that were true, that would sort of cut against the business model of many of these quaternary care centers where at least a sizable percentage of their business and philanthropy is alluring people to go there with the promise or expectation that it's a better place to be. Um, I think it's a tricky business um, that we find ourselves in, as you point out, you had an actual patient in front of you um, who passed away without access to a drug that he that he reg- was a deep regret in his life. And in re- and what you wish you could tell him, whisper back to him years ago, is you will not regret this. This is not, this right. is not that great a drug. Exactly. And yet we, we do that. We do that through the way our cancer centers advertise, which is shameless and I think cruel and despicable. We do that in the way we advertise unproven products. All of these small biotechs with their flimsy data um, send out these ridiculous press releases and tweet about it and you know hold these advisory boards. I mean, we are complicit in this. And I, so that's what I think is the challenge. I don't know if you have any insights on how do we... Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. There's unfortunately a, only a smattering of um, GI malignancies that you're treating with uh, curative intent if they are showing up in the medical oncologist's office. And, and you're absolutely right. These are the um, neoplasms that tend to be tested rigorously on the boards, like anal cancer, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, right. It's a little dispiriting that, you know, all these years on, we've only made slight modifications to the micro protocol, but we know that it's curative intent, and so we do it. I would say the, the biggest thing I've um, benefited from at large institutions is multidisciplinary input. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few GI cancers now that, especially at more advanced stages, don't really require um, expertise from our surgical and radiation oncology colleagues. And uh, in a mountain, for instance, we convene a tumor board across the state of Utah where we are able to get input from these different specialties. And I think that's been really valuable. Um, I think there's a lot of shifting in rectal and even pancreatic towards total neoadjuvant therapy. Um, and so again, thinking differently about the sequencing of, of treatment. But but I agree with you, you know, even there, it's, it's difficult to show in a very rigorous fashion um, how much improved uh, outcome you get. I think the surgeons maybe have the biggest advantage in that, you know, for instance, I had my operation at a center that did more than 10 Whipples a year. Right, which is an important metric. Precisely, and we know that if you have less experience in that, it's sort of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, you're not going to be as uh, good at the procedure. Um, But yes, we be very careful not to overpromise what it is we're doing. Um, And again, I just am quite transparent to patients that I am soliciting uh, opinions from my colleagues. I find for the most part that that um, actually boosts their confidence rather than undercutting their image of me. I think, again, we are over-promoting ourselves if we come across as omniscient or entirely capable of making all these decisions in a vacuum. Um, most of my patients really like to know that they're being presented at tumor conference, um, and then I really back to them, you know, whatever the consensus opinion was. But uh, again, I try to stress this is a, you know, the, the almost the, the Delphic uh, approach, getting experts together. It's not necessarily gospel. It's just the best thing that we have come up with together. You know, sometimes I think about these multi-D tumor boards, um, uh, and, and I think about the preparation that goes in. And, and I actually prepare a great deal because I want um, 
um, sometimes I want to people to see things from a certain angle and I want to make a case for a certain angle and so um, you know I think of myself as Cicero on the beach with the pebbles in the mouth or practicing before some of these things because you, you know you only have a brief moment you have yes. like I think like a minute to, to show people like the complexity and give them a snapshot of who this person is and let's see what the surgeon and the radon think and hopefully they kind of don't uh, don't think something that I did I don't I don't want to hear but no I mean hopefully hopefully they see the light um, but uh, but every so often you know people people have some input some clarity that you didn't have it's it's our version of the elevator pitch right yes and, it is and what i've really learned because i see a lot of pancreas is i've learned that i really should not be uh, opining too often on resectability you know i've seen some cases where you know the upfront endoscopic ultrasound looks to me like it's going to be you know yeah. absolutely inextricable from the vasculature and, yeah in the, in the hands of the right surgeon and i'm actually uh, happily proven wrong um but a, again it goes back i think to some um humility uh, yeah. realizing the part that we play in management and and again i think it's actually better to um admit that than not um i think it's again it goes back to some of our earlier points about being human and, and showing that to our patients, again, I think we uh, do them a uh, disservice if we uh, come across as uh, completely uh, infallible or um, completely clairvoyant. I don't think those things are true. And again, by sort of meeting them in the middle and, and admitting some shared uncertainties, I think that actually, in the end, bizarrely gains you a lot of trust. Yeah, that's well put. I want to read you something that you wrote from uh, an article earlier in your career, which I think um, these days it might sound not very interesting to the listener because they've heard it so many times by now. But probably when you wrote it, they had not heard it that many times because not a lot of people were talking about it. That's so ho- funny how um, the ways in which you know our writing changes, that something you thought was really timely and, and savvy, uh, years later you realize everyone's saying it. And so it's, it seems <laughs> as if it's a, you know nothing innovative. But, it's because I'm such a trendsetter. For yeah, you were, yeah, you set the trend. So now, <laughs> now you're in the thick of it. Um, so this is about the language of illness and particularly the combat metaphor. And so I want to read something that you wrote, which I thought was really superbly written. Um, but there is a larger issue here with the semantics of sickness. We have perversely allowed our medical vocabulary around cancer to mutate into the parlance of combat. No other disease evokes such talk of conflict. Even the more prevalent illnesses lack oncology's arsenal of hoary battlefield cliches. There are no wars against emphysema or hypertension. Heart attacks may be a byword for seriousness and cause chest-clutching bodies to fall, but there is no grand campaign against the clogging of coronaries. Cardiologists call the left anterior descending the widowmaker, yet more husbands are claimed by cancer than that sclerotic vessel. And then you write, it is beyond question that there is tremendous courage to be found in every infusion suite where patients receive chemo, but there is also bravery in the decision to say no in the person who assesses the dual threats to their body, the cancer and the oncologist, and decides not to engage. I have cared for thousands of patients with cancer, and I've never met a coward. So you don't like the battle metaphor. <laughs> well, I, I will say, and I've, it's funny, when you write something like this, you, you do get to see the other side. There, there are a lot of patients who actually find the fighting metaphor very um, uh, almost invigorating. It helps them uh, persevere, helps them keep going, and I, I respect that. I just think that the way we frame our efforts against cancer it doesn't necessarily have to be um, so militant. And I think where I really start to object is it, is it makes the transition to a discussion of hospice or purely palliative care very, very jarring. 
Um, I think it leads to the implication of cowardice if you're not accepting last line therapies, a very dubious benefit. And that's that's really where I've struggled with this the most. And you're right. When, you know, when I wrote this, it seemed a lot fresher than now. Although I will say, you know, I was preceded many decades before by um, Susan Sontag, yeah. who wrote about you know illness as metaphor. I actually think this is metaphor as illness. I think the war language has become so pervasive. I think it's actually a problem in and of itself. I also think we have the issue in... Um, cancer survivorship, uh, where you know, to the victors go the spoils. So the you know people that um, survive and are able to vocalize are typically the people who had good outcomes. You know, and this has been particularly a problem in the GI cancer community is that advocacy is limited by the uh, unfortunately shorter life expectancies of many of our patients. And mm-hmm. so for them, you know, they may have quote fought valiantly, but through no fault of their own, no lack of willpower or courage. You know, they succumb to their illness, and so that—that's again where I've, um, I guess, I've come out as a pacifist in oncology. I'm, I'm not wild about the war language. I don't think it's something we should force upon our patients. Yeah, and I mean, like you, I've also heard that some people derive comfort for from it, and I, and I'm sympathetic to that. And you know, at the end of the day, whatever you may find solace in, pursue it. But at the same time, I think about, um, you know, the drum coach in in uh, Whiplash. Uh, you remember, you remember this? Yes, day? yes. So he's like, he's yelling at this guy and just constantly berating him to push him. There are a lot of people who, athletic performers or musicians who derived a lot of motivation from the coach that would literally humiliate them and yell at them and just ride them. And yet I think we've moved away from that sort of as, you know, even though that some people would say that that's what motivated them to be great. Um, Similarly here, I think it's a not helpful analogy. I think it does exactly what you say. Some of us may have witnessed at times in our careers faculty saying things like, "Oh, um, do you want to keep fighting or do you want to go on hospice?" In yeah. a, sort of a in a way um, that can be, um, I think, cruel to say that to somebody. Um, but you know, I think some of us have kind of these kind of memories, um, and and it does not take into account the fact that. You know, sometimes I like to tell patients that there are these things that are within our control and they're, I'm holding my hands like very close together. And then there are these things that are out of our control and I'm holding my hands very far apart. And I'm like, what I'm trying to tell you is I'm going to do everything I can for whatever's in our control to maximize your chance of a good outcome. But I want you to know there's all this stuff that's outside of our control. Yeah. And and I think that the fighting metaphor kind of ignores the fact how much is outside of our control. Yes, exactly. It, you know, and you know, to get cancer in the first place usually means that you've just pulled the wrong number in the lottery. But then all of a sudden it seems to become implying that it's purely volitional how you do thereafter. And and again, I think that's just a a, a really burdensome onus of responsibility to put on our patients. I, I don't know if it was framed to him in exactly this way, but I do wonder about my father's decision to undergo that last and ultimately fatal dose of chemotherapy. I, I don't know exactly how his oncologist described it to him. Clearly he was willing to undertake the risk. Um, but it's, it's the kind of language that makes me nervous when, as you're saying, faculty or sometimes even loved ones are saying, well, do you want to keep fighting? And, and again, you know, like I said in the article, there's bravery in saying no. There's bravery in saying, listen, I've, I've heard you out. I've heard about the risk benefit of the remaining treatments, and that's not something that I'm willing to accept. And I just think we need to honor that. You alluded to this, and we were talking about it earlier, but your father passed away from an allergic reaction to a medication Mm -hmm. that at the time was investigational. It was not yet approved. What was that medicine? Paclitaxel. And this was the noted reaction that, um, based on Paclitaxel's insolvency in uh, H2O, uh, it has to be packaged in with a cremophore, uh, uh, solubilizing agent. And 
it was quickly learned in the early clinical studies that people had adverse reactions to that, and that led to um, the issue of premedication with dexamethasone, which is probably what your father didn't get, and probably right. why he had this unfortunate outcome. Yeah. Um, do you know how he felt about his choice, or? Well, again, my mother. So I'm, I'm an only child, and my mother has really been helpful in reconstructing a lot of these memories for me. You know, um, I, I won't say that he was at peace at the end. I think he died in great distress. But again, I, I as we were just saying, I think he accepted um, this risk. Uh, you know, I was 14 at the time. I think he. Um, you know, to back up a little bit, you know, sometimes part of um, our patients' desire to remain is they want certain milestones. They want to be there to witness certain things. And I think my father just wanted to witness me get a little bit further into high school, quite Mm -hmm. understandably. And and also he knew that he'd exhausted a lot of the other treatments that were available to him. He'd benefited, as I mentioned earlier, from the very providential release of Phil Graston. I think probably in the back of his head, he wondered, well, maybe this access to paclitaxel will be the same sort of mm-hmm. miraculous timing that I experienced with GCSF three years ago and mm-hmm. ultimately that not being true. Um, but yeah, I think he, as best I can tell, went into it informed that this was um, potentially precarious. As I was saying earlier, when I was cited a 3% chance of mortality with my Whipple, that's something that I took. I don't know what number when you're facing an absolutely... Um, irreversible and terminal illness, I don't know what number then becomes acceptable. I think that's probably variable by person. But I imagine whatever uh, he was quoted, again, was largely speculative because at the time the agent was investigational. And again, something that I think he was um, uh, then uh, consenting to. So I've never, I want to be very clear, I've never uh, faulted his oncologist for doing it. It's just always given me pause and I just have to admit my own bias. You know, if I'm seeing someone in the hospital, first of all, in GI oncology, it's thankfully fairly seldom that we're giving chemo to an inpatient. And if you are, it's because they are uh, very tenuous. And so I think that becomes freighted with more risk. So yeah, I think my dad went to his grave doing something that he felt um, was worth trying. Uh, But I, I do wonder if the potential benefits had been oversold to him and you know, you and I talk a lot, and well, you in particular, about how transparent we are about the solidity of our data. And I think as long as you're engaged in a candid conversation with your patients about what it is they're willing to receive, um, I think that will ease our conscience. I, When I went into oncology, one of my best friends is in business, and I told him, you know, I, I could never do what you do. I'm a terrible salesman. And he looked at me and said, you're kidding, right? You, you convince people to put poisons in their body all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. Actually, I never, never looked at it that way. But again, I think the reason I feel comfortable with that transaction is within the realm of my understanding, I'm telling them I think it is more reasonable than not that they accept a therapy. And I think at some point that line starts to shift. Um, when that line starts to shift, that treatment is best administered in a trial uh, so that we can capture that data and learn from that outcome and not done as um, purely improvisational oncology. That's well put. Um, you also can send people to trials in your current job. Mm-hmm. And how, how do your discussions go there? Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I found that the um, patients, as I mentioned earlier, when I was at Mayo and Anderson, there was almost sort of a, a predisposition to the patients to be more willing to accept protocols. That was often the reason that they were there. Um, in my current practice, which is a much more community-based uh, demographic, um, it, it does tend to come up in, in later lines after you know, conventional treatments have been um, exhausted uh, or patients have developed prohibitive toxicities from those treatments. I, I've been very impressed, though, at the degree to which patients are now looking online for themselves. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the self-advocating patient is something that oncologists need to recognize. In fact, I, I was one myself. If I hadn't pushed for my ME1 diagnosis, I think it would have taken a couple of years before I got the correct label. Mm-hmm. So 
I am not surprised now when a patient comes in and has already been on uh, clinicaltrials.gov. I think in the last year, two years, the interface has gotten a little bit more user-friendly. I think it's allowed them to search uh, in a more granular fashion to their own geography and willingness to travel. Um, I think, again, I think it's a, a dialogue. I, I don't expect to know every trial in real time for which my patients are eligible. Obviously, I try to stay abreast of that. Um, but I actually really quite like it when a patient brings in something and asks me about it, because then I can explain to them inclusion and exclusion criteria, why or why not they might qualify or consider it. Um, so I, I think it's just, I think if we're closed off to our patients coming in with questions about trials, I think we're risking a, a real opportunity to, to talk to them and get them involved in, in research. I think increasingly they feel less like guinea pigs. Um, I think our main fault at this point is not relaying results to them in a transparent fashion. I think a uh, clinical trial in its best incarnation is a two-way exchange of information. Mm-hmm. And where I think we've fallen down is disseminating results, especially of negative studies, right. back even to the people that participated right. in them. I mean, they gave of themselves, and um, they often don't get the feedback they're looking for. They don't even know what happened in the trial. Precisely. And, yeah. and that's where um, paywalls, I think, are a real issue. Problem, yeah. um, you know, there's this um, slogan I've seen on a coffee mug uh, that doctors have been buying online. It says, you know, your um, Google search doesn't equate to my medical degree. Yeah. I think we hold, you know, patients who are looking desperately for information online and hold them in some disdain. Yeah, I find and, a little condescending. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But mm. put, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Yeah. What are they supposed to do? I yeah. mean, um, they don't have institutional access to the same resources we do, we are often very lucky to have the primary sources. And so they run into these cul-de-sacs where they can't get the information they're looking for, sometimes can't even get the results of the study they participated in. I think that's a huge failing uh, to reconnect with the people who participated in our protocols. I agree with you so much. And I think it's... um you know, in addition to the access to the article, the way the articles are written are so often in jargon, jargonese. Um, and the reason I'm acutely aware of that is every so often somebody tweets about like a health economics article or a legal article that's sort of cross-related to what I'm doing. And I try to I print these out and I go home and I read these 87-page articles and it's all just jargon, jargon. And I then I, I just curse under my breath and say, you know, if this were published in JAMA, these people would have to write this in a succinct 3,000 word and get to the bloody point and you know they'd have to tell me what they actually did in a method section and they'd lose all these useless equations and they'd actually show me some tables and some data you know so of course so i read with my prejudice but then i can imagine how many years did it take me to learn this particular jargon yes um and and now that i know the jargon it's easy to read medical articles um but it wasn't easy to learn the jargon and there's no book of jargon right jargon is half in books and half in from working in your clinic yes yes it's you know that's the thing that's so interesting about medicine is you know, we really are still our training is still largely apprenticeship, yeah. right? And and you're you're right. There's a there's a code that we learn through doing that. I often put myself in um, when when I'm thinking about how patients look at our articles. I often think about what I feel like when I go to get my car repaired. Mm-hmm. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, that's the primary vehicle by which I listen to plenary sessions. I see. Um, it's an important vehicle. <laughs> yeah. And when it when it breaks down, I take it into the shop, and I realize I have so little understanding of the mechanics of what's going on under the hood. And one of my friends has joked with me over the years, I'm getting totally fleeced. You know, they could tell me that my turbo flux capacitor <laughs> needs to be replaced right. and I'm opening my wallet. Right. And, and again, I'm not trying to condescend to our patients at all. The human body is much different than, than that machine. But I do realize that I am very quickly in a different uh, professional environment with a different working language that I don't understand. Yeah. And you're right, it took years to acquire the health literacy 
necessary to really properly uh, dissect an article. So it's really not fair to expect our patients, especially in a time of such great stress, to immediately vault into our primary sources and, and be able to um, separate the wheat from the chaff. The, the other thing I'll point out there is that many of my patients are able to get to the synoptic uh, capsules on uh, PubMed, but, yeah. but can't get any further. And I know you're a big um, advocate of, of really critically reading the literature and going deeper yeah. into methods and such. But that's why those um, you know, abbreviated results sections that you can see on that front page of PubMed, are, it's so crucial what's in there. And the selective reporting of, say, response rate over overall survival for a patient, I think, can be very misleading. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, 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 that the only way to understand an article is when you can really kind of read the whole thing and, and, and you're so limited by what you can see in abstract. I, I fear that not just patients, but so many doctors, we're just so busy, we don't have time to read the papers. And that's in part the reason I try to put this podcast together, yeah. uh, at least for some papers, so, you know, you hear some deep dive on it. Um, but um, I, I think it's challenging. And, and you know, I, I've joked before, and people have argued with me, uh, I say that doctors practice by press release. Uh, and it was like, oh, no, nobody would ever do that. And I was like, and then I was telling it to my friend, an oncologist, and he was like, no, they don't practice based on press release. Um, they don't read the press release. It's, it's having heard about the press release from a colleague. He's like, that's that's the level of evidence. Third hand. Yeah, yeah, third hand. And yeah. he was like, you know, and who is that? And these people are just lying if they're saying that they're practicing based on better evidence. Um, but the other thing you're talking to that kind of made me made me think about when you're talking about trials is for institutions like MD Anderson, um, running clinical trials is just so much money is involved. Um, you could have a faculty member who gets multiple R01 grants, which come with lots of indirect funds, which is good for the university because they're making a lot of money it is often pale in comparison to a trialist who has seven trials because the amount of slush in those trials is often bigger than even R01 slush. And and I guess I would say, I think this is like one of the deepest problems with universities is that we have kind of defunded federal funding for you know decades. And that has made universities become addicted to alternate sources of revenue. And one of those easy alternate sources of revenue is the industry. Um, and what that leads to, I think, is just having an army of faculty who are trialists. And you can count on one hand the number of people who write critical thought pieces at some of these major cancer centers. Um, and, and, and that's not what academics meant, I think, in, in the sort of the academics of your father's generation, yeah. you know, what it would have meant to be an academic. Um, so I wonder if, if something is lost there. And also, I mean, often there's even perverse incentives on investigators to enroll on study in terms of salary at risk and things like that. Uh, these don't help the conspiracy theorists <laughs> that come into the office, right. you know? Right. Um, even though we know there's no conspiracy, it's not really look so good when, you know, if you're getting paid for every patient you enroll on trial or if you have a million-dollar slush fund from rolled over trial revenue. I mean, that doesn't look good. Right. And, I, you know, I did my fellowship, as you mentioned earlier, at Mayo, and one of the people that I so dearly wish I could have met was Charles Mortel, mm-hmm. who I know you've uh, mm-hmm. paid homage to on this podcast before. His... His spirit uh, was was definitely still in evidence, and I just love to go back and, and read his work. Um, it, one of the one of the things I will lament, as you were also saying earlier, is the the loss of authorial voice in modern medical writing. Yes, his, uh, his his voice is very clear in the work that you read, and again, it's almost like he's speaking to us from beyond the grave. And one of the things I really respect about him is, you know, he he was very wary about the influence of industry on um, our academic medicine and, you know, particularly railed against the 
drastic price hike in Levamisol would right. have moved from the veterinary to the right. human medical mm-hmm. space. And so I, I, you know, I think he was almost prescient in yeah. foreseeing a lot of these these issues. Uh, and again, you know, some of the, the profit margins that um, we're looking at now would, frankly, make uh, Levamisol. Uh, look almost acceptable and and how its price got uh, jacked up. But, um, you know, I think someone like Dr. Martel would look at our modern um, relationships with industry and and really have a very critical eye indeed. And so that was always, again, even though I never met the man, that was always sort of in the back of my mind when I was going through training and I wanted to be very careful about my own relationships with industry. I'm not trying to be holier than thou. I just think, like you were saying earlier, you're going to make sure the juice is worth the squeeze Mm -hmm. uh, and that your reputation remains hopefully um, uh, above reproach and how you've uh, interacted with the drug companies. Yeah, I think I've heard from other people that sort of the spirit of Mortel kind of le- lived on long beyond his years at a place like Mayo Clinic. Yeah. But Mayo Clinic is also a place that always prided itself on having sort of academic freedom uh, among faculty, people who are willing to challenge norms. Um, Anyway, it's, it's the subject of my monologue this week, so I was thinking about <laughs> So uh, you'll hear more about it probably prior to this, this interview. I wanted to talk to you about a little bit of a fun subject. Sure. ASCO 19 bingo. <laughs> yes. This was, uh, as as listeners, I guess, may not know, that was actually you and I, our first opportunity to meet in person. That's right. Was that we were lampooning uh, the meeting. And I think what we both saw, among many others, was that there are certain tropes now at <laughs> conferences uh, that you can predict are going to occur. And, and you, uh, again, are, are way ahead of me in making these bingo boards, and I have to give you proper... Uh, inspiration for this one, but I really enjoyed um, making this. I already have some plans for ASCO 20. I can predict oh, some of the wow. things are going to come up. Uh, but yeah, let's go over it. Yeah. Let's go over yeah. it. I guess I'd say that, um, you know, I, I may have made some bingo boards in prior ASCOs, but um, you've perfected the bingo board because oh, this you. one this one had me in stitches. Um, okay, so let's just go through some of these. Sure. Um, uh, uh, dudes peacocking with their ribbons. <laughs> Uh, I want to explain this to listeners. So yeah. there is this thing you get a ba- you get a lanyard that you wear around your neck and you get a badge. And then you get a little sticky note that you add to the bottom of the badge. And one sticky note is I have a poster, I have a lecture, I am a presenter, I'm an ASCO uh, inductee, I'm a fellow of ASCO, I'm a full faculty, I'm a full professor. And one can imagine that some people who have been in the profession for a long time get many such ribbons. And there was this phenomenon uh, on the internet where people would um, take pictures of themselves with ribbons that ran uh, the length of Donald Trump's tie. It was like a bridal train, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a bridal yeah. train. Yeah, you needed somebody to walk behind you <laughs> holding your ribbons. And um, and it was always men. That's why, yep. yeah. I've never seen a woman who would do such a thing. It's how we alpha one another at ASCO. Yeah, it, um, I've actually heard, and I, I hope this is... Uh, well, actually, I, I hope this isn't true, but I heard there's one that's ex ASCO president. I'm not sure at that point that you really need to <laughs> gild the lily like that. Um, and also, there's a rumor, which we'll have to watch out for this year, Vinay, that there's going to be a trend of people printing their own ribbons to then oh, extend boy. the length of their strands. So I'm going to watch see. out for That'll that. That'll be a funny yeah. rumor. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I guess what you're lampooning here is that it's a form of, of narcissism. And um, I think it's so interesting in medicine how there are things that people like, you know, in the grand scheme of life, I'll put it this way. I'm often struck when um, junior people are like, oh, Dr. So-and-so is so famous. I'm like, yeah, they're famous among uh, oncologists. oncologists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oncologists who do GI oncology. <laughs> yeah, right. but yeah. in like the sphere of society, no one knows who the hell this person is. Exactly. Okay, <laughs> Yeah, so they're not famous. So right. you can uh, d- take them off the pedestal. Um, 
my one of my absolute favorites is the graph that shows tumor type on the <laughs> x-axis and mutational burden yes. on the y-axis. They, they should be getting royalties off that. It, it has <laughs> appeared at literally every conference I've been to, I think, in the last five years. And thank you for recognizing that. you gotta, you got to have your TMB. you got to have that. you got to have the TMB. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that has always struck me about that figure is that it actually, to my eye, looks like there's more variance within a tumor than between tumors. But <laughs> let's, you know, let's skip that takeaway message. Um, here's what I love. Guy steps to the microphone during Q&A to hype his own research. Oh, yes. Uh, the the self-referential question, which isn't a question, is just, uh, it's absolutely maddening. It's maddening. Uh, yeah. yeah. And and I, I feel so bad for the, the people that are on the stage at that point because, you know, they're, they're pretty helpless and they can't uh, in any way craft what's going to be asked of them. So that, that really, that one really does bother me. It's just a... Um, a commandeering of of the mic to to again advance your own interests. It really is inappropriate. I, I, I call it the uninvited lecture. You are giving an uninvited <laughs> lecture right. after the yeah. lecture. But you know what? I'm going to shut that down. <laughs> Next time I give a lecture and somebody comes to the microphone and they don't start asking a question, I'm going to interrupt them and say, "Look, say your question and then give the preamble because I need to know there's a question at the end of this right. because these preambles go on and on. And of course, you know, I. I, I, I I understand the feeling that you have views. I have views too, but unlike you, I keep them, you know, in my own mind, and I release them on a podcast to people who, you know, they don't have a gun to their head; they don't have to listen. Uh, toxicity was manageable uh, with ten uh, percent grade three to four AEs. Yeah, that one really gets to me. As I mentioned earlier, I've you know been um, t- taught my own uh, career not not to minimize even. And mm-hmm. I'm putting air quotes from that, even grade two. And I know, you know, Bashal Giawali and others did a, a beautiful manuscript about the, the BMJ. That exactly. Was, that the, was after your thing. Yeah. yeah the, and then. The, the sophistry of um, the language that we use around toxicity, I, I think it's really appalling. I, I think a lot of the things that we consider manageable, we would absolutely shudder to go through ourselves. That one really uh, strikes a nerve with me as a patient and an advocate. I think you you hit the nail on the head. And uh, now more recently, Dr. Dan Longo from the New England Journal of Medicine had the paper last week, which I have discussed on a prior episode. But to me, I mean, uh, what makes it all so disingenuous is that um, in our profession, when we do phase one clinical trials, we don't do them in healthy volunteers as in every other medical profession. We do them in people with cancer. And that is only done because we accept toxicity in this disease uh, that we will not accept for heartburn medications and cholesterol medications. So if the toxicity is so manageable and it's so walk in the park, do your phase one in healthy volunteers and then come talk to me because I can promise you uh, it's not going to be so easy to do. Um, Laser pointer squeezed (laughs) spandex tight between two survival curves. As I like to say, if you could fit a laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session. Yes, I I also enjoy the axis malfeasance where uh, people play with scale and then don't uh, call attention to it. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. that that can induce some uh, wider wider separation than is justified. Yeah, it's really, it, it is amazing some of the uh, oratorical uh, tricks that people um, will try to pull. I, and I, I should point out, I, some people thought that this bingo was um, mean-spirited. On, on the whole, I really uh, enjoy ASCO. I think it's a great opportunity to get together. But I also think we do need to uh, recognize that um, you know, s- some of this is in- inflated and self-important. And one of the things that I really... Um, Hope to see at future ASCO meetings is more involvement of uh, patient advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was a conversation that happened during this last meeting, and I really do think the organization is is moving to be more inclusive. But I think a professional meeting, just like we were saying earlier, it can actually can be quite um, 
closed off to uh, patients who are actually affected by the disease, mm-hmm. largely due to the, the near prohibitive cost of, of attending. Right. That's why I think the virtual um, aspect of the meeting is, is so important because we actually are, those of us who are lucky enough to attend in person can then disseminate and sort of be on the ground uh, reporters. Um, and so I, I, I think this was an inflection point this year in oncologists. Um, again, broadcasting the meeting, which I thought was great. I think, unfortunately, some of the patient advocate uh, participation declined. And, and again, sadly, we need to realize that some of these patients are, are dying, um, particularly in the breast cancer social media community who really have been pioneering. They've actually lost a lot of their most prominent voices in recent years to the disease itself. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we need to realize that while oncologists are spiking, some of the patients have, have dropped off. And so ultimately what I wanted to do around ASCO 19 was be um, yes, funny, uh, but also engaging, and to get people really talking around the meeting, because that's how I think, uh, again, a lot of the findings are actually spread beyond just McCormick Place itself. Well, only a humorless troll would find this <laughs> not funny and, and cynical. I, I think it's quite funny, and and perhaps some people are taking themselves too seriously. But um, And you're very kind of to ASCO. You're very charitable, but uh, I, I'll tell you my criticism of ASCO. You tell me what you think. Um, uh, I have a lot of criticism, a lot. I, I just I stack it up high. Um, I, I guess I would say, I mean, um, I, I think there are some virtues to it. Like, the biggest virtue of these conferences is it's a place to, like, get people together to mingle. You know, so, and this is true not just conferences but so often like faculty functions we have like the quarterly meeting or something Mm -hmm. like that and people always think like oh what presentations can we get for the quarterly meeting i was like no you don't need presentations just have a couple drinks and let people mingle because that's the real value of it it's the mingling and people chatting the networking just people chatting people just want to blow off some steam and talk about things and catch up that's what they want to do and maybe the the, you know the the discussion should be like a tiny fraction of it not meeting not presentation after presentation i listen enough of that um i think some of the things that i think could be better about asco is um Abstracts are screened in this sort of, you know, strange way um, uh, for orals and posters based on who they think is doing better science. And there's a number of studies that have looked at subsequent publication rates among accepted and rejected abstracts. And there's no difference suggesting that there is no logic to what they're picking. And I guess I'd say as long as there's no logic to the merit of what they're picking, with rare exceptions, like some, you know, phase three randomized trial, of course, that's going to get a big, you know, stage. um, And that's what people want to hear about. But a lot of these uh, underpowered phase two studies, you know, that could be a poster, it could also be a presentation, and there's no rhyme or reason. I think they should be picking those, the orals, based on who's a good presenter. Mm. I don't. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I've sat there silently in in the audience watching the battery die on my iPhone, praying uh, that it won't die before I can call the Uber to get the hell out of here. Um, so I guess what I'd say is, why not let there be some audition video yeah. to like, let's get somebody who gets a little bounce in their step. And, you know, um, this is another thing about presenting that I think cuts across dimensions. But so often people tell me that, like, you know, attendings are distracted. They don't listen to the present fellow giving a presentation. And I say that's absolutely true. And there's no I'm not going to apologize for those attendings. But what I will say is, as a fellow, I was made at a point to speak to convey information, yeah. which means that, you know, I'm going to try to get your attention and, and talk about it in a way that's engaging so that I know you are thinking about other things. I don't want to listen to this anyway. Um Similarly, I think that should be extended to the uh, the, the sort of ASCO place. Um, I think we got way too many posters. I mean, uh, even in like GI oncology section, I can't I can't even see them all. Yeah, if you excuse the pun, it's an indigestible amount. It's um, an indigestible, yeah. yeah. And it's funny. This is actually bringing us full circle to my dad. Um, you know, as a minister, you know, he actually put a lot of thought into speaking. public speaking. Yes, and uh, he never used PowerPoint, so he died in '94. I actually think it's a tool he probably would have abhorred. Um, and he put such effort into writing his 
sermons when I actually had a rule that for every minute in the pulpit, he would spend an hour writing and rehearsing because he wanted, I mean, he, he felt, again, he was quite literally um, on a mission from God. He wanted to convey the, the good news uh, to his congregation. And so he spent so much time on his oratory. And I, and I do agree with you that, and, and it's not a problem that's just confined to ASCO, I think the art of presentation We've become uh, far too reliant on uh, technological crutches. I, um, I think one of the other things I had in Asco Bingo was uh, presenter reading slides verbatim to literate audience. You know, we've the the medium has uh, totally corrupted the message, and I think it's so common that people um, sort of get into a, a rhetorical drone and then actually lose the opportunity to convey the points that they really wanted to. So I think that's really unfortunate. But I, I think that pervades, frankly, a lot of um, academic medicine. I think. There needs to be more uh, thought to promoting people that are effective communicators, both in writing and at uh, oral talks. And actually, I think that extends to social media too. I think oh, we're still trying mm-hmm. to figure out yeah, we're still figuring how out. that's uh, a currency that we can measure. Um, obviously, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. You've been extremely active on Twitter yourself. I, I'm curious if you think that there is a change in our culture where now it's being seen as less frivolous. Um, yes, well put. Yeah, yeah. I, you're onto something. Yeah, a couple yeah. couple years back, yeah. I was actually encouraged to join Twitter by Mike Fish at MD Anderson, and he he said, "Listen, this is going to be valuable for you, academics, even if you're completely passive and just use it to curate a feed of information from people that you trust and sources that you trust. It'll still be useful to you." And I do think we're starting to turn there. I just uh, back to the whole problem with quantifying things. I don't know quite how you measure it and how academic departments value it in their faculty. That's that's well put. I mean, I have sensed something that's happened. You know, I've been on since, uh, I think my account will say, like, I logged on in 2014, but I was compelled to do it by, you know, something at Johns Hopkins, some class at Johns Hopkins or something I was taking at the time. Um, and I didn't really use it until about a year later. In my case, what brought me out of the lurker mode, and to be honest, I wasn't even much of a lurker because when you're not using it, you don't look at it that much. Right. You're not addicted to the product. And that's what they're, I mean, to be honest, they're quite good at crafting that sort of attention addiction. Oh, yeah. Dopamine hit, yeah. Dopamine hit yeah. every time the notification, everything. But I try to disable all that so I don't I don't get those hits anymore. You know, I turn off all the notifications. I mean, also in part because I can't get any work done. <laughs> I mean, I can't even, I mean, you probably struggle with this. You can't even read all the notifications some days because right. there's just too many. But I guess I would say that back then it was sort of a frivolous thing. It was a place to kind of just say what you're thinking, heat of the moment, see what people gave back to you. There were some raw debates. Feelings were hurt because debates got, I think, they got, uh, the gloves were taken off very quickly and yeah. people hit below the belt. Um, and so it was a rough, it was a rough and tumble place. A few short years later, it's being increasingly seen as a place for professional advancement. People put out tweetorials about how to be tweeting, you know, tutorial <laughs> on tweetorial giving. And, um, you know, they, they give advice that some of which I don't agree with, which is like never disagree with anything anyone ever says and only be positive always. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's not going to help us in the situation. Okay. All this positive thinking. And, uh, let's look at the state of this country. I mean, okay, come on. It's not going to, not going to get us out of this pickle. Um, Okay, they have all this advice. Um, but, you know, people use it in different ways. It's almost as if it's a, um, a running CV for some people, yeah. a place to put yeah, forth exactly. their articles. Some people use it to hit upon passion issues, whether that has to do with social political justice or um, inequalities or disparities within healthcare or academics. Um, and those are all, I think, great ways to use it. I guess one of the things that, you know, is interesting is is to me is when, when somebody tries to do too much, um, they want to have a tweet account that's telling you about 
baking and also golfing and also doctoring. I think that's not great in the sense that, like, look, we all want to watch a channel. I want to know what I'm getting when I turn on yep. ESPN, and I don't know what I'm getting on this channel. And so I think, you know, so there are other people who say, oh, well, tweet whatever you're passionate about. I'm like, look, I agree with you. You know, don't hide who you are. You right. are who you are. Be, you know, happy with who you are. But you should also think that it's a it's a channel of some sort. Yeah. So it should be on topic, at least, at least in my view. But what do I know? But I think it has evolved a lot. It's less frivolous. People take it more seriously. You know, I don't know how you feel this way, but I don't like it if people say, oh, you have like uh, a lot of, you have 10K followers, yeah. Mark. You're really important. And I was like, okay, look, in grand scheme of things, this is also another frivolous metric. These these are not Kardashian numbers. Yeah, right? you're not Kardashian. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I've had, I, I've, I've um, seen you appropriately um, uh, recoil from this, which is, which is people trying to get to some arbitrary number of mm, followers, hate uh, typically in the thousands. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just, that, that comes across to me as, as somewhat inauthentic. I think if you're saying something that's resonating with people, you're going to get quite it. organic. Yeah, yeah it's going to, it's going it, to amplify. Yeah. One thing that kind of horrified me at ASCO this year was, um, someone came up to me and they said, boy, I just love your brand of having had cancer and you're an oncologist. And it you're, struck me that this is not something I, I cultivated, brand, right? Exactly. Yeah. I wasn't sitting there as the architect of my own Whipple and thinking, oh man, this is going like, to be so many followers. Let me know? CRISPR in this ME1 <laughs> mutation. I'm ready to go. CRISPR, <laughs> boom. That's right. CRISPR, in CRISPR slash biohacking your way to a brand. <laughs> Mark Lewis, that's how you did it. It was, it was ingenious. Yeah. You know, I'll take all the credit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that that struck me as why wow, we've really gone so far that it, everything comes across as if it has to be contrived. And um, I, I think what I've seen now of an eye is people succumbing less to the false binary that they can only contribute to the peer-reviewed literature or they can only be active in social media. And, and I think there's absolutely room for both. Yeah. And I think you know um, authors and investigators to a certain extent should feel okay um, against signposting to their work. I think that's a valuable way of yep. raising an article's impact. Um, but I think there's always going to be a place for robust, you know, peer review. Um, and so I think I think what's happened, yeah, exactly. What's yeah. happened the last couple of years? I think people are increasingly seeing that um, they can actually get their research better disseminated if they also use social media. Um, the last thing I, w- I guess I would say on that is there is a, a, a place for authenticity. I've sometimes seen uh, people that are launching a trial, for instance rush to Twitter, maybe for the first time to promote it. Mm-hmm. And right, I yeah. think patients are pretty savvy <laughs> yeah. that if you're doing that, it comes across as opportunistic. You know, I think the longer you're online engaging in a dialogue, the more, again, you cultivate trust in your audience and they know you and um, have faith that you have their best interest at heart. So I, I would caution people not to think of it as a uh, ready-to-go promotional tool for protocols. I think that actually gets quite dicey. Yeah, I think that doesn't, it doesn't have a good look. And then you look right. at the account months later and the only thing they ever tweet about was their protocol. I was like, right. oh gosh. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do like to say that, um, you know, tweeting about your own work, uh, that's why people follow you. Uh, writing your own Wikipedia page, that's narcissism, <laughs> right? And <laughs> I mean, that's the difference. There's a distinction. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I don't fault people for that. But I, but there's some things on Twitter that really have been getting under my skin lately, which is um, the, the constant praise of like uh, the same clique of people. They may all be, um, you know, a lung cancer researcher is always praising each other the same six of them over and over again you're the best you're the best what do you think you're the best you're the best oh my god give it a break okay Jesus there's like a lot of lung cancer doctors out there six of you happen to be on the internet okay and y'all think each other are great okay um, uh, uh, the 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 endless like um, uh, selfies with me and this person look at me here look at me there look at me there I'm like when are you ever in clinic man <laughs> I was like you're everywhere when are you in clinic 
was like, um, people, this new world of oncology where if you're a disease-specific expert, um, you can live a life of travel. You're going from world lung to ESMO to lung cancer weekly to lung cancer monthly to this conference, that conference, this conference. Um, I don't know about you. I mean, I like ASCO, but I also like that it's only once a year. I right. mean, I have other. Right. Yeah. If we, if you were just constantly at conferences all the time. Yeah, on tour, 2019. On tour. Yeah. It's interesting. I, you know, um, and I, I know you uh, also are not fond of the term key opinion leader. No, it, the KOL. It, I hate yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. It does. It, it does make me wonder. I mean, I think we're human beings. We're prone to um, clickish behavior yeah. and and self reinforcing conduct um you know i i tr- it's interesting how much i've realized travel is a part of academic medicine and as a uh, spouse and a parent i've actually tried to limit my own travel i'm thrilled to be here of course of course but that's actually <laughs> again where, where twitter has become so useful is i yes. don't actually feel yeah. as compelled to attend in person yeah i feel like i can follow um the majority of a meeting from afar and still derive quite a lot of content and yes you're missing the in-person in-person networking opportunity, as you mentioned earlier, but you're right that um, you know going to every meeting at some point just becomes completely unfeasible, and then is um, taking away from your clinical responsibilities. And one other thing that you've said on this podcast before is how you know this is more than just a nine-to-five job. There's always things that come up with our patients. Um, even right now, this morning before I came here, I was addressing some needs of someone that was hospitalized back home, and so I always feel that pull too. Is that you know I I want to be home with my family, but also when you're providing patient care, there is a certain sense of responsibility that you need to be there more often than not. And so again, that's where uh, social media and Twitter have been really helpful for me is to feel like I am staying up to date without going to every single meeting. I I agree with you. I think that that it is so important as an oncologist to be available to participate at decision-making junctures. And those decision-making junctures do not fall within business hours. Right. I have this kind of crazy theory that um, um, we have actually evolved in a kind of a detrimental way, and by this is what I mean. Um, there's there's so many academic leaders who have basically set the rules for this place and your place and all places, um, who uh, don't do any clinic. I mean, in fact, in p- part of part of what it means to be a leader is to not do clinic, and and I think that's been rationalized because clinic is a time burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the way they justify it is to say, well, I'm doing something else and I just I can't be available all the time for these clinic sort of issues. But what I think people have forgotten is um, doctors are happy to be asked medical questions day or night. Mm-hmm. You call me about a medical question, you wake me up from sleep, I would love, I mean, I, I don't even mind if it, when I'm talking about medical que- question that needs me, that yeah. needs my, what I can bring to the table that nobody else brings. But you call me at, six o'clock at night and you ask me to co-sign an order for IV contrast. You ask me if the patient, um, if you ask me to um, double click on something that's pending, a letter that's pending in my inbox uh, to say that somebody has cancer and co-sign that to to click on all these, you know, just these this empty clicking. Yeah. Well, what am I? Yeah. I'm just somebody who clicks and I'm available for clicking at your beck and call. And so that's what I think is like the burnout. Yeah, it's, it's the tension between our administrative tasks that uh, you know, are not what we signed up for and yeah. then the, the clinical acumen that we've worked so hard to hone. I, I completely agree. Agree with but you. my th- my point is that the administrators who run the show, um, they let it get this way, yeah. 
because they gave up the clinic. If they didn't give up the clinic and they held on to the clinic, there's no way in hell they would allow you to be called for some frivolous clicking of the computer that requires 15 minutes of logging in from a cold computer at home. You know, they wouldn't have allowed it. So the more you get people who run the show who are disconnected from the actual job of being a doctor, you just have this, it just becomes like they don't care yeah. and they just, they don't have any interest in solving this. And if they did it for one week, they would know. And I'll just give you one small analogy. Um, there was a day not long ago where uh, the fellow had some retreat and, um, and and somebody tricked me and they said, will you cover this day? And I said, sure. Um, but then I didn't know it and me by myself. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I worked as the fellow for a day and I realized that boy, these fellows are working hard. And they're not always working hard on like the stock and trade of being a doctor. They have a lot of frivolous things to do yeah. um, that uh, they have to do all day. And I was like, this is the part about like work hours that no one talks about, which is uh, we all like pretend that, you know, this generation, they don't have a work ethic. But let's be honest, we're not, we're not making them do doctor work. We're making them do a bunch of scut work. And, and I know because I just did it for a weekend and I could barely take it. Um, so anyway, so I don't know how, how this fits into our conversation. Well, no, I, I th- what I would say is that um, I actually cannot imagine imagine ever being in a position where I didn't have some patient contact mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, again, it, I think it keeps us grounded in, in multiple respects. It does remind us about what's important and where we should be putting our emphasis. And I know it's very um, trendy these days to talk about practicing at the top of your license, but there's a reason that we trained as long as we did and work as hard as we do to try to develop this sense of how best to take care of patients is that's what we want to be doing. And I think all the documentation has become a unfortunate epiphenomenon yeah uh, you know abraham Verghese has a beautiful article i think from almost 2008 called you know patient is icon mm-hmm, uh, where mm-hmm. he, he talks about how you know we've we've taken to treating the avatar rather than the human being and that's another reason i always want to have some form of clinical contact is without that sort of flesh and blood uh touch um i think it is very easy to um again get your priorities shifted and be focusing on something that's quantitative and uh, in the computer rather than the uh, messy part of taking care of human beings who are sick. Yeah, you're a primary EMR buffer and secondary <laughs> doctor. That's right. Yeah. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about before our time is up is now that you learned you had a germline mutation, um, if you've had your kids tested. Yeah, I have. And th- that's, thank you for asking. It's uh, important to me. So when I was first diagnosed, my wife and I had uh, only our daughter and we had her tested and she was uh, negative, so did not carry the mutation. And then we were actually you know, faced with the you know, conundrum, the very modern problem of what to do next. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted another child. Um, we did uh, very briefly look into pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So, you know, in vitro fertilization plus mm-hmm. selection screen. Yeah. yeah. And um, ultimately for a variety of reasons, didn't feel comfortable with that. Um, it wasn't in line with our own ethics or frankly even our finances it was well outside Mm -hmm. of salary at that point and the other thing that i thought about to be honest with you is you know if my parents had applied that technology to me it's very brave new world i wouldn't wouldn't actually be here yeah Mm -hmm. so i thought well i i I can't really justify doing this to uh these embryos and and i know it's it's appropriate for some families especially with conditions that are far more um burdensome and and lethal than Mm -hmm. i mean one so i i do understand why the technology is there i'm not saying it's um, universally bad, but it wasn't for us. And so bottom line is we went ahead and decided to have another child. It was a, an autosomal dominant inheritance of 50-50. <clears throat> and my son does carry MEN1. Hmm. Um, but frankly, raising him um, has been so instructive to me about you know, how to, I hate to even use this word, but normalize a lifelong condition for a child. My wife's pediatric influence here has been absolutely vital. And, you know, we've gotten him used to a certain degree to testing. He knows about blood work. He knows about MRIs. Um, 
as I mentioned earlier, I've not been shy about exposing my kids to healthcare, partly because I think my son is going to spend much of his life engaging with it. And whether he's actually in medicine or not, I know that he's going to be a patient and require longitudinal follow-up. And so I feel very invested in um, the future of patients, and particularly those with germline conditions. I'm pretty uh, worried about discrimination. So, you mm-hmm. know, the Genetic Information yeah. Non-Discrimination Act is incomplete in its protections. Yeah. You know, when I rushed to get myself diagnosed, I didn't really think about yeah. long-term um, detriment to my, you know, long-term care and disability and life insurance. But all those things have taken a hit. And I do worry about um, him. I, I think the other risk that we run with sort of large-scale genetic testing is people not fully thinking through the, the downstream effects of, of that knowledge. And... Um, Back to privacy for a second, you know, one of the places I've found um, connection is on social media, but you really have to be careful divulging that you carry a germline condition on social media. Facebook, for instance, had a rather famous leak of uh, BRCA survivors Mm. last year where you Mm -hmm. could put in a Chrome extension and scrub uh, a list of people in a a closed private group. Oh, dear. So uh, long long answer to your question is yes. So looking at my kids 50-50, I've got one within me and one, one without. I feel very hopeful about my son's future. And um, I think, again, I, I will counsel him on minimizing atrogenic burden. But um, I think for our condition, at least, forewarned can be forearmed, as you've seen with my surgeries. And I just uh, feel very optimistic about his future. I think you put that well. I mean, you're right. There's obviously a continuum of genetic risk syndrome, and there's some things that um, that one might see a case to be made for for this, particularly um, some of the very devastating diseases of childhood that are irreversible, untreatable, and there's no prophylaxis. Um, But your situation is nuanced and requires this kind of um, thoughtful approach. And I'm reminded of many years ago, I had lunch with a philosopher named Adrienne Ash, and she was uh, was blind. And uh, and she wrote many articles about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and her fear was that somebody like her would not be around if it were in vogue because all things being equal, cited as better than not cited. Uh, that would be one philosophical argument. But her point was always that you don't know the challenge it is to not be cited, and it might not be as bad as you think. And in fact, everything we know about quality of life literature suggests that you know every time people think that being disabled or having genetic risk or having a disease um, would rob you of quality life, we find in study after study that quality of life is so much higher than many would expect. Yeah. That, and that's really the bias among those um, who aren't in those shoes. Yeah. Um, and, and we look at it perhaps more pejoratively than what it might actually be like living in the skin. Yeah, it's, it's imposing a, a value judgment on those that we perceive to be less able-bodied than we are. And yeah, yeah I, I, I totally understand that. It's a fascinating perspective from your philosopher friend. So I think it's been a pleasure to have you here on the plenary session stage. Thank you. Um, you you know, what I, what I think about from listening to your story is I think if you didn't have this syndrome, you'd be pretty much the same person. Hmm. Um, it has impacted who you are. There's no doubt about that. But some of what you tell me about who you were, who you are, your formative years, before you were a fellow, before you knew you had MEN, yeah. you were probably very much this way. It's probably who your father was as a person that yeah. more influenced you than who he was in his genes. That's very, that's very kind of you to say. I think that's probably one of the highest compliments I can receive is to be compared in any way to my dad. And, uh, and you're right. Um, I, I like to think that we, we share more than um, just a, a germline mutation, as I like to think about my own relationship with my son. So thank you. That, that really is uh, 
uh, extremely flattering to hear. And uh, as, I, as I said earlier, I've sort of taken the long way around to viewing what we do as a, a form of ministry. I know medicine remains secular in many ways, but I try to um, live out the idea that you're um, serving another person uh, to the best of your ability, often serving as their, as their counselor. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, you know, medicine's highest calling. Dr. Lewis, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>